Friends, top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Three hours of fun, information, and, you know, if we're really lucky, a few laughs. We're really, really lucky. We might even get a giggle here and there. Welcome to the program, the program where we give you the tools, the ideas, the solutions to help you grow a healthier, happier life. We know you don't need the help, but all those messed up people around you, they do. So we're here to help them. Today, we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk about how your unemployment may actually change your personality, believe it or not. Do you believe that? Being unemployed changes your personality? Has to be. Absolutely. <laughs> Looking at Terry, and, and what happened at, to your personality, the, Terry? the guest we're bringing on is talking about long-term personality, or yeah, personal, like, long-term unemployment and impact. how that warps you. Uh, see, my, my situation was rather relatively short, nine, but still, yeah. I felt warped. Well, I just looking at you more than usual. You are one warped dude. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into the superbug dilemma problem. Superbugs are out there killing everybody. We're hearing about it. We heard the big UCLA not one. Everybody, everybody's dying. Not birds scare are here. falling from the air. That's a different superbug, and those are birds. It's cholera, a little avian cholera up in Idaho. No, yeah, thousands of geese. Superbugs are an issue in hospitals. Yeah. Trying to keep every surface clean as you're you're dealing with uh, sick people makes it difficult to uh, control those things. So we'll talk about that. Got to work on that. And obesity of children. That's another topic we'll have in the third hour. You know, Puerto Rico wants to basically find parents if their kids are, you know, in the obese category. I don't know how that's going to work. Neither Be- do I. Because I don't know how you get your kids to do anything. We, we ask our kids, we can't even get our kids to pray yeah. without a fight, right? So how am I going to get them to eat right? We'll talk about that. Anyway, a great day. By the way, so excited for Russia. Vlad's back. He's back. The dude was just gone for 11 days. Now he's back. He's a little pale. He's a little pale. But they, for the most part, looking relatively healthy, is the reports I saw. He, yeah. th- he thinks it's funny the... Uh, all the attention. He goes, maybe I should leave more often, take some more time to just step away. Well, there's a lot of people that would agree with that. Yes. Like that he really needs to but leave he, but more he came, But he came back with a uh, a charge as normal. Just He has to be tough. He has yeah. to put forth that yeah. that, that image. He, uh, he says that he was willing and ready to use Moscow's nuclear arsenal as oh, a boy. last resort in the conflict over the annexation of the Crimea. <sighs> Maynard. Because we were ready to do it, Putin said in a documentary that aired Sunday on Russian TV. He was, I talked with colleagues and I told them that the Crimea is our historic territory. Russian people live there. They're in danger. We cannot leave them. So he's, <sighs> he's, he's you know, threatening to use a weapon that would make it so nobody could live there. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, nuke it. Just nuke it. But, it's, but he also, let's just be real. This is the same guy that was dis- had disappeared for 11 days. Right. You take Barack Obama and just have him disappear for 11 days. Never happened. Can you imagine what would go down? I mean, he, he goes on vacation. Everybody knows where he is, and people have a problem with that. That's right. That's right. 
he, he's flying in an airplane that's connected to everything in the, on the planet electronically, mm-hmm. but they have a problem because he's not in the White House. Not to mention Michelle O. She wouldn't let that happen. No. I mean, what first lady is going to let the first man out of sight? For 11 days. For 11 days. There was a lot of rumors. Now, now Vlad isn't necessarily tied down no, he's in not. the same way that Obama is when it comes no. to marriage. So no. He's got a little freedom there. Vlad had that whole story about having an Italian girlfriend. Yes. He j- they said, no, that is not true. He did not leave the country to go. Right. She, she, she may have come his love to him. He is the president of Russia. Yeah. Two, well, one of the richest men on the 200 earth. kajillion dollars, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a big day in Israel. There, uh, people are going to the polls. Bibi, will he make it? Voting for uh, prime minister. Vote for Bibi. Bibi's a little concerned. I bet. He adjusted his position on the two-state solution yesterday. What, what is it now? He previously said that he was willing to negotiate and try to uh, come to a two-state solution. But yesterday, because he's sagging in the polls, he went a little hard line and said, not under my watch. We'll never have a two-state solution. Oh, boy. He says, uh, it was, if they do establish a Palestinian state, we'll have to evacuate territory. It's giving the ra- radical Islam a staging ground against the state of Israel. Hmm. He was okay with it before. Now, not so much. So what happens when if BB loses, I guess that makes the Republicans look really bad. Yes. Because they voted. And there is know. some theory as to why the Democrats yeah. kind of just let it happen. Yeah, interesting. Let BB come in and be kind of the, the poster child guy, the, yeah. the guy the Republicans are backing, and then all of a sudden they look bad on foreign affairs. Are and- there even – there's some theories that uh, – the that Obama's administration ran kind of a counter campaign, paid even for, subsidized, really? little anti Bibi over the over there in Israel uh-huh. to get what's his name is Isaac Herzog is the opposition candidate I believe Isaac Herzog yeah I want to be like Ike also another Herzog. another example of possibly how desperate. Yeah. Netanyahu is. Yesterday, a TV commercial fe- featuring Chuck Norris endorsing Benjamin <laughs> Netanyahu aired on local TV. It's bad when they bring in Chuck. Brought in Chuck. <laughs> and he's like, I like Israel. We, you know, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a Putin move. Yes. Look. It's what a, BB needs to do is get on a horse, put a little unicorn horn on it. Take off his shirt. Take and off his around. shirt and ride along the beach. Works for Vlad. Totally. Saw this yesterday. Mitt Romney will step into the ring to fight Evander Holyfield May fifteenth. Ex- oh, really? Yes. Excellent. Is, a, is that what he's doing now? It, Mitt. Yeah, he's now a prize fighter. Excellent. So presidential didn't quite work. He decided not yeah. to run. Now he's going to be a prize fighter. Well, no. <laughs> uh, the match is part of a fundraising event for Charity Vision, which pays for thousands of eye surgeries every year in developing countries around the world. In an interview, Romney said the fight will either be very short or I will be knocked unconscious. No, he's really going to put he's on gloves. Put on gloves and go out there and fight. Oh, may he rest in peace. <laughs> Absolutely. Who's he's fighting? Holyfield. Holyfield. Who's, oh, he's a know, good guy. Holyfield's lost a step. Well, but come on. But one punch. <laughs> one punch. Do you remember as a kid? I used to think I'd take a punch. I'd take a punch for a million. His son Josh Romney tells the uh, Salt Lake Tribune it'll be patterned after a 1920s style event. To get in, you'll have to fork over twenty-five to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you got to put your money in to go fight. See, Mitt's in good shape, though. What, money-wise? Absolutely. Money-wise, oh. I think he's well-insured. Okay. So that's half of the battle. And then he's he's fit. He's fit. How do you know this? Because I've seen him. Okay. I've never seen him like with his shirt off, but so I've is, seen him. Is he trim or is he he's, physically he's, fit? There's well, a difference. He's trim. 
I've never like I haven't done a you stress him, test on a do treadmill. Some push push ups. I mean, but he's fit. He's able to stand and walk around in a I suit. I think what he's going to do is just he's just going to dance around the ring, and Holyfield's going to exhaust himself, and then he's going to run around mid wheel, jump on his back, and you know. Put him in a full Nelson, a game over. Is he going to have headgear, though? Because I feel like he's putting his moneymaker on the line. You would have you know? to. Yeah. yeah. There's no way you walk out there yeah. as Mitt Romney and stand up against a former no, you heavyweight champ. And, <laughs> Here, gonna, hit me. <laughs> you, know the, you know the games that they play where they put you like in a big, fat sumo suit? Oh, yeah. That's what they're doing. I love they're going to blow wrestling. up little, fat sumo suits, and they're going to have him go wrestle. Yeah, so that's for charity. That'll be happening on the 15th Man, of May. if I were Mitt, I'd just write a check. Yeah. Why put yourself through this? <laughs> Says he's going to do it. Oh, man. I, yep. You know what? That That's worth paying to see right there. Oh, yeah. Especially if you went into the cage. Like if he was doing oh, MMA. Cage fighting. That would be intense. That really would be. Like putting Mitt Romney in an arm bar or something. See? That'd be crazy. Uh, you know, last night I had my insurance guy over. Speaking of Mitt Romney. Speaking of arm bars. Speaking of arm bars. <laughs> Speaking of mixed martial arts, and he, ah, I'm so rich if I'm dead. I tried to see if I if I could die and keep my money, but he says it goes to my wife. And the whole time she's like, "You know what? It's okay. We won't need it. But you let's get let's just get a little bit more, a little more insurance. We're fine. We don't need it anyway." I want to be like Mitt someday. I want to be rich, but I want to be a rich man that's alive. A, a rich man that doesn't look like he just got hit in the face with a doorknob. Yeah. Because, I mean, if he gets hit, his face will swell. And he's a and... good-looking lug. Yeah. I mean, brrr. See, this is why it's not worth being famous. That's why I love my job. Because no one's going to ask me to go fight. Anyway. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you know that unemployment may be a major change, create a major change in your personality. If you're unemployed for a long period of time, your your personality is going to change. So if you are married to somebody or, or if you are unemployed, listen up. We've got some great insight coming up for how you need to uh, watch out for your psyche as you're going through some of the battles with unemployment. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the United States economy uh, has added 295,000 jobs in February. And according to the latest numbers uh, from the Labor Department, the unemployment rate then has fallen to 5.5%. It's lowest since spring of 2008. But even though job creation is trending up, unemployment is still a real problem in our country and around the world. Our next guest studies how long-term unemployment could affect our personalities. Would you believe that uh, the long-term uh, unemployment could actually decrease your job, your confidence, your self-confidence, which obviously would impact your ability to get a job. So joining us now is Christopher Boyce, who co-authored a study on uh, you know our psyche, our personality, and how it changes over time. Christopher Boyce, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hello, thank you for having me on. Great to have you on. And you're you're uh, you're using Skype with us uh, from Scotland. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I hope it's okay. Yeah, I know it sounds fantastic. Uh, it's great to have you on. Talk about your study. Um, you you were studying unemployment, and and then one of your findings basically is how it impacts our our sense of confidence. Yeah, that's right. So generally in my research day to day, I'm kind of interested in how socioeconomic events affect our kind of our, 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 well, our sense of well-being and also our kind of personality. Um, so what we thought it would be interesting to look at is this idea of personality change within the, the concept of um, within the, the confines of unemployment. Because um, we know unemployment has a very strong effect on people's, yeah. people's well-being. Um, but there's little known about what else is really going on and, you know, do people recover and, and why are they recovering or why are they not recovering? Um, so the thing with personality change is that we don't know too much about why personality is changing. Um, but it, we know that it can be strongly linked to an individual's well-being. Um, and there's kind of this idea that personality is fixed. So who we are is kind of set in stone. Mm-hmm. We're kind of interested in kind of finding out a little bit more about that. So we kind of looked at the experience of unemployment specifically. And, and um, what, what was one of your biggest findings? There is a correlation between confidence and unemployment. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so personality is broadly defined in kind of a, a, as a five-factor model. So you have five broad dimensions of an individual's personality. Um, so what we did is we had personality before an individual became unemployed um, to rule out the fact that, you know, personality could have generated the, the experience of unemployment um, and also observe um, personality after the unemployment experience or during it. Um, and so there's this kind of idea that has these five dimensions, as I said, um, and we found that individuals' level of conscientiousness um, dropped, which is ten- tendency for an individual to be motivated, to be goal-directed mm. um, and uh, dutiful. That kind of dropped considerably, um, and it, it dropped more and more as uh, the unemployment spell increased. Uh, we also found reductions in the level of, levels of agreeableness. Now, this is a tendency to be you know, compassionate and considerate of other people as opposed to antagonistic and potentially hostile. Huh. Um, so, you know, it's quite, a, quite a, 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 an interesting finding, you know, yeah. that, you know, unemployment experience itself kind of generates these certain kind of behavior patterns that, that make it then difficult to then find a, find a, find a job again. Um, we also found that, that people's level of openness, which is the tendency to, to view the world as a kind of interesting um, uh, and be creative within that world, um, that also dropped as well. So it's kind of suggesting that wow. you know, just the process of unemployment really does have really detrimental effects on, on individuals and then can then make it very difficult to, to, to then refine, it, uh, refine employment. It's kind of a so, – so then it's a self-perpetuating cycle, huh? Because then yeah, you, you start – you, you can't get out. You're not as conscientious. You're not as agreeable. You're not as open. Yeah, and I think we've kind of kind of missed the point is the fact that this is actually tied up with the process. So it's not a case of oh, we can think about the unemployed individuals. Oh, they're this way or that way. You know, that's their uh-huh. own fault. It's a kind of actually you become unemployed, which can happen. You know, realistically to any one of us, um, these certain characteristics do come out. So what we really need is to be offering more support for individuals in these hmm. situations. That's so true. We we do. We kind of just oh yeah, those people are just that kind of person that can't get a job. But the reality is you saw across all types of personalities that they took a hit. And it was the hit different the longer it goes? Yeah. So we did get some kind of some kind of differences. So initially, I think – so we looked at differences between men and women. Um, 
And I think men, so initially they, they rise in their levels of agreeableness, kind of potentially trying to, you know, because they realise that, you know, they've lost their job, perhaps they want to kind of placate those around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but after, you know, longer term unemployment towards three or four years, they actually saw reductions. So kind of suggesting that there are kind of differences depending on the experience of unemployment. Yeah. But if people are quite agreeable and they are quite conscientious at the early years of unemployment, then we need to be supporting them um, to help them, you know, refine value in their lives, whether it through be employment or some other way, um, such that it, it doesn't affect their kind of core core personality. Yeah. In the United States, we measure um, kind of uh, unemployment, I guess, a little bit differently because there are some that are more, uh, I guess, I, don't, I can't remember the word, but more chronically unemployed. They haven't had a, a job for a longer period of time. And it seems like your data would show why some of them actually drop out of the market. Like, like, why even try? Because it's not working. You might become more cynical. Do, do you think there's a correlation there? Um, I would, I would suspect so. I have I can't specifically say that. Yeah. But um, I think kind of the more general point is, is, is that you know, little the things that do happen in our life do affect our kind of core personality. Whether it be unemployment, whether it be actually completely falling out of the labour market, or for example, um, losing the capacity to work full stop, maybe becoming disabled, then it can have issues on our personality, which can then prevent us from 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 being able to 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 rejoin that workforce. You, you talked about five points that um, you were measuring, conscientiousness, neuroticism, agreeableness, extroversion, openness. Did did you notice any cor- any correlation with neuroticism or extroversion? No, we didn't. And I was kind of, I think, quite surprising mm. for neuroticism because we do know that, you know, that the well-being um, falls quite considerably um, yeah after experience of unemployment. So we kind of think this is probably the most, you know, closely related. So neuroticism being the tendency to experience negative effect, you know, anger, hostility. Um, so we kind of thought they would be very closely matched. And we, you know, if anything, we'd see changes in individuals' neuroticism. But right. um, we didn't. Um, but, you know, that, you know, we do need to do more research on this because I think, you know, our, our hypothesis was that it would change and it, we found that it didn't. But, you know, one study can't, you know, answer all the questions. Sure. Um, we do need to, to, to replicate and, and go further with these findings. What did you find um, out about extroversion? Extroversion didn't change at all. Okay. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I think some of the, the, the aspects of, of the personality, we thought, well, okay, they, we think they may change because we, there is evidence to suggest that, you know, life events are really important for people's um, personality makeup. But it wasn't quite sure. So, I mean, things like, say, agreeableness or openness or even extroversion, you know, if you become unemployed, yes, you, you lose that financial capability. Ability, um, but you also then have more time, so you may be able to engage in different things, um, mm. which may be beneficial. So maybe you, you don't have to work with the disagreeable boss that you used to work with. Right. So potentially your agreeableness might rise, but we didn't find that it was wholly negative reductions. Um, but um, yeah, how, so how, how um, soon? How soon does it start impacting? Did you were you able to detect that? I mean, what was the earliest um, that you started to see these changes with unemployment? Um, it seemed to be happening within the first year, um, but the effects weren't as strong. Um, I'd like, I'd like, I'd like to look at more kind of fine-grained data, really, because uh, at the moment, the, the, the thing is, our study. I mean, one, the big aspect of it is the fact that personality changes. Who we are is not set in stone. Major mm-hmm. life events and even smaller life events can have profound Im- impacts on us, which has kind of positive and negative connotations. Um, but we need to kind of go further with that. And at the moment, because we don't, you know, within the academic community, 
um, largely and if we're with general populace is we don't kind of have this idea notion that we can change who we are and we don't even understand why that's changing. So we need kind of more data, really. So right. at the moment, the data we used, it was, you know, two years of unemployment, of, of personality. But, you know, if we had more more data, we could actually ask some more fine-tuned questions. Um, but we need more research looking at personality change, really, in relation to lots of life events, you know? No, absolutely. Well, let's do this. We're, we are talking right now with Christopher Boyce, Dr. Christopher Boyce, who um, is a well-being researcher. Go, You can go to his website, ChristopherBoyceResearch.com. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to find out a little bit more what we should probably be doing, you know, as communities uh, based on some of this information. He obviously has a lot of research to do, but I want to know what uh, where he thinks we should be going. This idea that you are not just set in stone, that your personality is deeply impacted by what's going on in your life. In this example, in your unemployment, um, it's important to know, right? We're going to come back and talk more with Christopher Boyce right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Friends, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about unemployment and how it impacts your personality over time. Did you know that uh, the longer you're unemployed, your conscientiousness, your agreeableness, your openness tends to drop? Which is really basically about your happiness, right? Your personality isn't just fixed in stone, and there aren't just those people out there that, you know, just are unemployed. They just can't get a job. Maybe one of the reasons they can't get a job is because their personality is taking a pretty big hit, and the longer they stay unemployed, the longer some of these things, you know, continue to beat them down. Christopher Boyce is joining us, Dr. Christopher Boyce, who has been researching uh, this this idea over in Scotland and has, has put together a great article that uh, the Washington Post uh, talked about his research. Christopher Boyce, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. It's great to be on. You bet. And again, anybody that wants more information about Christopher, go to his website, ChristopherBoyceResearch.com. Christopher, I know as a wellness kind of expert and and researcher, there's got to be some you know policy you know solutions or ideas that you've got to be thinking in your head. What should we be doing? Maybe to to mitigate the impact that unemployment has on a person's personality. Is there anything we should do globally or as a or as a country that might impact this more positively? Yeah, well, I think we've got to ask ourselves a question: is whether you know we're happy living in a society, I guess, where we have a large proportion of individuals who are con- kind of constantly unemployed. You know, five percent or whatever the figures are in different countries. Yeah. So, I you know Spain, especially the young. Um, in Spain, you know, the, the, the employment rates are unemployment rates are, are, are humongous, and I don't think uh, we should really be living in a society that, that that kind of thinks that's that's okay because obviously this is having very detrimental effects to individuals' well-being. But we also know now their their kind of core personality. Um, whilst on the other hand, because you have this pool of unemployed people, but you have other people who are perhaps you know working um, quite hard, maybe too much. Um, so you have a kind of very disparate. Um, 
um, group, groups of individuals, so maybe working too hard and also people working not enough. Yeah. And um, we know that, you know, relating to well-being, unemployment has a very destructive effect on people's people's well-being um and people if they would if they they could choose would probably want to work a little bit less and have more time that they could maybe spend with their family and maybe spend time on their health and fitness um maybe spend time working on their kind of inner self Mm um and we know things such as you know personality change it relates very strongly to changes in well-being so it's, it's it's a really important aspect and i think there's lots of things that we should i mean i think first of all we need to be having a, a serious debate about you know what we want our societies to be to be based around um and obviously with well-being research that i do um i'm a big proponent of you know basing basing our societies around well-being I yeah mean, so it's always about the economy and that's really important but only up to a point well yeah especially um, so because the well-being will facilitate the economy and it's i guess true uh the economy then facilitates our ability to focus on well-being many would think but you, you could actually as a even as a company I mean that's probably an important thing to know that if you if you just hired somebody who has been unemployed for a while their personality might need some help you know I mean not not their personality but their their sense of self their sense of community I mean that might be something really important to even focus on helping us to sustain and grow well-being once we do hire somebody or if we have to let somebody go find a way to make sure you know hopefully that they can also continue taking care of their well-being um, well, I think it's more kind of question of support and a question of support at all levels and, and rungs of society, uh, no matter where we are. So, I mean, if someone is unemployed, then offer them the support, give them the kind of other opportunities that they can then develop and grow in a way that, that's meaningful to them. But at the same time, you know, when someone is employed, um, also give them support as well. I mean, right. I think that the societies we live in, it's, there's not enough support generally for each other as, as, as human beings. Um, and I think this is what this 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 tells me. It's I don't want to live in a world where you know there are people who are unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of would rather see you know maybe less people working so hard and um, having kind of more job sharing um, and less focus on the on the economy. We must grow. We must grow, but more on on living in a meaningful society. Um, that has that has well being one of it as one of its tenants. Yeah, it seems like too. Um, the I guess that that becomes is kind of this almost this this potential uh, run in between capitalism and the idea that we want to grow as fast as we can, make as much as we can. But one of the things I hear you saying is that doesn't necessarily create happiness or well being. And mm. maybe if we could focus a little bit more of our focus on well being. Um, we, we might not, you know, we might be able to employ more people by spreading it out a little bit more. Is that what you're saying? Uh, certainly. I mean, a lot of my research has generally revolved around this relationship between income, money and well-being. You know, does money buy us more happiness? So generally looking at, you know, so the long term effects of an economy growing over time, does that bring well-being? It brings maybe some, but not a lot of the time. So right. it's, it's, it doesn't bring as much as we think it's going to. Um, and um you know so as an individual yeah it may raise an individual's well-being but there's often more important things that potentially we're sacrificing in the process of, of trying mm. to obtain obtain more money and i think that's what we really need to think about you know so the effects of unemployment aren't coming because someone's lost income it's coming because um it's a very difficult situation and all of a sudden you know 
you know, people are appreciating what you're doing, you know, day to day, you have a job, oh, what do you do? I do this. But when you don't, suddenly things have changed in your life yeah. and you, you may be losing some sense of meaning and purpose. And that's what we need to support. Yeah. And that's what we need to be focusing on. When, when you think about um, it on more of a personal level, someone in your home, let's say, is unemployed and they've been unemployed or underemployed for a longer period of time. What, what could I do as a spouse? What could I do as a parent for my children that might be un, unemployed? Are there things specifically we should just do kind of on a one-on-one basis? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think you know, to a fellow human beings, we, we can offer support, you know, try and listen to people and understand their kind of situation, have empathy for that situation. Um, and, you know, however we can try and help them. Um, not, and, you know, it turns out, oh, well, you need to get a job. Are you looking for this? You must do this. I mean, so, you know, a lot of the situations, say in the UK, for instance, you go to a job centre, you know, it's very kind of, um, it's a very difficult process for people who are unemployed because they don't get a kind of human-to-human relationship, um, which can actually foster an individual's motivation and enable them to then, you know, yeah. go on to get a job. So it's kind of a very kind of way unemployment is seen as a very kind of negative thing. It's like, oh, you're unemployed. You must do this. You have to do this. But rather than kind of supporting individuals and going, okay, you're unemployed. Okay, but what can we do? What can I do to help you and support you? Um, maybe for the moment now, it would, be, it would be good to do some other things that are not maybe related to the employment, maybe say such as volunteering or mm-hmm. just helping within community because that's a really important thing. Um, but unfortunately, those kind of jobs don't get, don't seem to, or they don't yet. And I think they should if we had an economy revolving around well-being rather than just you know the finance markets. Yeah, that, you know we we don't really value those 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 jobs from a, an economics perspective, but from a well-being perspective, helping in the community is really important. Oh yeah, um, and it'd be good if we could construct something more based around that. Really, um, well, but then also comes partly to the, the kind of personal process and actually trying to create a world around you that, that, that revolves around that. Yeah. Um, and then potentially that, that spreads. I mean, it seems like a really powerful idea to, to make, um, our lives centered around well-being. Um, I, I guess I just sit there and I think, Oh man, how do you move that? I guess part of it's just having this conversation, huh, Christopher? Cause I mean, it, forever the it's well it's about the free market it's just you know those people don't want to work if they wanted to work they'd have a job and but the reality of what you're proposing is we got to get out there and and maybe change the conversation to be more about you know where where we can value volunteering and and actually even maybe find ways governmentally even maybe to compensate people to volunteer a little bit to 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 refine themselves to make sure that they're not losing themselves and I mean, it's it is. I think it's a big change that 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 has potential um, mm. if we could move that way. Certainly, I think you know. I mean, I think my part, my 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 job is to to, to change that conversation, to have yeah. that conversation. In terms of kind of practical outcomes, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm based in the university. I'm an academic, so in terms of practical outcomes, what can specifically be done? Um, and for me, it's about changing that, that, that conversation. The dialogue, right. What, what's important? Yeah, okay. So if I'm thinking about, oh, I, I just got offered a job promotion. Oh, okay. So a lot of people think, well, I have to take that. It's a no-brainer. Economically, right. I get a pay rise. But then if I go, okay, stop, hold a minute. Think about whether you want to take that, but think about your well-being. Mm-hmm. Ah, maybe that's a different outcome. Because then I'm going to think, well, okay, okay, I'm going to get this promotion. I'll get more money, but I'll probably have to work a little bit harder. I'll be very stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll have less time to spend with my family. Um, 
if I was thinking about well-being, would I take that position? Oh, maybe not. So I think, you know, at that level, just having that dialogue within yeah. ourselves um, is really important. And that's what I try to do on a day-to-day basis personally. Um, but then I think there's also a role for, for, you know, on a kind of broader, more national level, international level, saying, okay, we want to, we're thinking about doing this policy um, but when it's looked at from an economics perspective, it's always kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, is this going to bring, bring in more benefit financially than it is cost? But if we kind of thought about that, okay, let's look at it from a well-being perspective. Um, what what would be the balance there? Maybe we will come with different decisions. Sure. Um, hopefully, we will come with different decisions because I think we could live in a in a in a more meaningful, more fruitful for yeah. world. I think. Well, it also seems like um, kind of the the intrinsic values, the intrinsic benefits are there, but it also seems like if these people and their personalities are impacted because they're unemployed, they're going to be unemployed longer. There's going to be cost to the government anyway. I mean, so my belief is always we got to do something different. And maybe this is the beginning of that. I also just see inherently, we already know that uh, higher unemployment eventually can lead to more depression, more depression can lead to uh, suicide rates. Uh, Mm. The suicide rates we know go up with the rise and fall of the economy. I mean, Mm. there really are a lot of impact. This is this is, I guess, the Mm. human dilemma, isn't it? Because it's so complicated. With with so systemically connected, um, and yet some of the solutions might simply be something as simple as let's make sure we also are, are grading everything as far as well being is concerned. Mm, yeah, no, certainly. Um, I mean, I know. So I mean, a lot of these effects, so unemployment causes you know depression, but then that can have and then make it more difficult to then refine employment. Right. And I know there's been a big push in the in the UK for more kind of psychological therapy based on this kind of economic argument. Um, of you know, if you know from an economics perspective, right? If you if you spend more money trying to help people from a, from a mental health perspective, it would enable them to get back into the labour market, um, and then it would actually save money hmm. from an economics perspective. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, that dialogue is has to be made on an economic argument rather than a kind of okay, what's really important? Yeah. People's well being. So well being in and of itself should be the primary reason why we're, we're investing in, in mental health services. That's true. Well, we appreciate you, Christopher. I think it's, I mean, it's, to me, it's exciting research. And what's your next take? What, what, what are you going to go study next? Um, there's kind of a lot of things. So I'm generally looking at um, income and well-being relationship and why, we're, why we sometimes feel that it's going to bring us a lot more well-being than it actually does. Mm. We're looking at how... Yeah, trying to understand those psychological me- psychological mechanisms as to why we 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 do think that. Um, so we're kind of actually showing at the moment that it's the, the the well-being income well-being relationship is only apparent in certain groups of individuals. Hmm. Um, but then by having this general belief in society, even amongst a small group of individuals, this can then uh, convince other people who maybe it's not that much as important for that that we really need really need that in our lives rather yeah. than having you know more time with friends family and and so on yeah more so passions more, more uh passions. yeah i mean i think it's great christopher boyce uh again appreciate you go everybody check out his website christopherboyceresearch.com and um when we think about it too i just think it's um there's a lot you could probably do personally with the people around you all of us that are out there with somebody we love that's dear to us uh, we could probably do more to just understand that their lack of a job right now, their lack of, um, you know, having having a, a purpose or a passion that they're connected to, it, it's impacting them. 
And so maybe it might foster more empathy, as Christopher taught us, more more compassion for this person, more maybe just understanding where we, instead of just being frustrated with them, wondering why they're not going to get off the couch, maybe what we could do is try to understand that this is probably impacting them psychologically in a way that we might not be understanding. We do appreciate, uh, again, Christopher Boyce. Go check out his website. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion, do a little coach's corner on this. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting as we talk about, uh, you know, unemployment, we are so quick sometimes to judge these people that just won't go get a job. Come on, you lazy bums. But did you know that people were that impacted? We know that. I can't tell you how many guys I've had in my office that just were unemployed and they couldn't they were just in a funk. They were down. And all of a sudden, you know, their wife is tired of it, obviously. Uh, in fact, that to me would be fascinating to go study the secondary relationships or the other relationships connected to that person that is unemployed. But if your personality takes a hit, you feel more depressed, you feel more, you know, less conscientious, so less able to focus on the details of life, uh, if you feel you know, more, you know, less agreeable. One of the things he didn't get too uh, into in this study was that um, one of the things they found that at first he mentioned the fact that men, for example, become more agreeable when they lose their job. They, They kind of become nicer for a little bit, which is a means for them to, you know, go out, jump in, get in the game, be socially accepted, get a job pretty quickly. Yeah. Also, maybe it's just because, hey, they got a little free time now. That feels really good. They can play a video game or, you know, go do all those little honeydew lists things. But in the second year, what they found out that they those men actually became crankier. They were more ornery, more angry, more bitter. Interestingly, right out of the gate, they found that women had um hit that threshold of bitterness faster than the men did. The men, you know, it took them two years to get there. Uh, the agreeableness diminished more quickly with the women, and uh, they became a little bitter faster, which is interesting. So when you sit here and think about all of our millennials, all of these uh, these younger generation that maybe are kind of the boomerang family that are all coming home and staying with you and you keep looking at them like, are you ever going to get a job? You know, I wonder if the, the, this is all happening to them. Is some of that uh, kind of laissez-faire attitude that we look at with some of these um, 20-somethings, is that laissez-faire attitude just simply the idea that, you know, it's hard to be motivated, Dad, when there's just certain opportunities that maybe aren't there for them. And so one of the things I would suggest, you know, as you're sitting there assuming everybody in the world could get a job if they wanted it, 
let's just remember that there are we are more as a human than just our job. We are more as a human than just our body and our chemistry. We also have a mind. We also have a spirit. I call it the body-mind-spirit issue. And the reality is a lot of us don't get mental health issues. We just don't get it. We just think if everyone just put their head down and just worked, well, sure. Again, perfectly spoken by somebody who's never experienced anxiety, probably. Uh, I had somebody once that just they could not tolerate another person that they knew that had anxiety. They just didn't get what it meant. And it's just, it's not a big deal. They just need to just do it and they just need to go. I mean, for example, in the LDS church, we, we suggest to our youth that they go out and serve a mission. And you've seen all these missionaries all over the country in their white shirts and but, you know, right now there's probably 85,000 or so, 80,000 missionaries out there worldwide. And if 20% of the population have depression or anxiety, then odds are out of that 80,000, 20,000 of them suffer anxiety. The idea of going around and meeting a bunch of new people, it's really hard. It's hard. And yet we just say, go do it. Yeah, okay, it, but recognize for a certain percentage of them, it's hard. And why I, why I bring that up, because this one father could not get how a kid couldn't just go. You just go. You just go on the mission. But this kid I knew had major anxiety, major anxiety. So I asked this dad, I go, have you ever, do you like speaking? He's like, no, I mean, I'm, I, li- I don't like it, I, but I'll do it, like speaking in church or speaking for groups. I don't love it. I, I go, what do you feel before you have to go give a speech? He says, I feel a little nervous, feel a little worried. I go, the more you study, the more you prepare, the less worried you feel. He goes, yeah, a little bit. I go, what if I told you right now, I need you right now to go speak to a 1,000 people about something you didn't know much about? What would you feel? I'd be worried, but I'd do it. And then I said, great. So what if I asked you to do that about every hour? About every hour, I asked you to go be in an uncomfortable situation and do something you didn't feel confident doing every hour of every day, of every month, of every week, of every year. That's anxiety, right? That's anxiety. And it doesn't go away just because you did it. Because the next hour, we got to do it again. And the next hour, we got to do it again. So instead of maybe all of our judgment of everybody out there that's unemployed or unemployable or struggling, maybe we ought to understand that there's other reasons that you don't get. And if you don't get it, it doesn't mean you're right. By the way, I'm also not saying there aren't people that could just go get a job because there are. And there are a few people that are just lazy. And if I'm going to bet, there's more people that just are afraid, that are insecure, that feel inadequate. And until we can help those people get through that, guess what? We're going to have the same problems over and over and over and over. And then we wonder why they do drugs. Well, because the drugs give them the energy to just go do what their dad or mom keeps telling them to just go do. (laughs) Makes sense. Why are there so many 
places in the country that we need to have pot and marijuana? Why are there so many states legalizing it? Because there are a lot of people that that is how they deal with their anxiety is they just go smoke a little weed. Doesn't make it right. But that same person, you know, if they come from a really wealthy family, that same person might just go get medicine from their doctor. But the less wealthy might just go get some pot from a drug dealer on the corner. And to basically medicate what? Probably anxiety or depression or attention deficit disorder. Anyway, folks, it's complicated. And so maybe what we could try to do when we think of somebody out there that we care about that, that is kind of in a moment where there's kind of a failure to perform, they're not quite stepping up, they're not where they need to be, maybe what we need to do is see them not just as horrible evildoers that are trying to ruin your life as a parent. Maybe what we ought to see them as is somebody that just needs help and maybe in a way that you don't understand. Make sense? That's why sometimes someone else can have so much more influence over your kids than you can. Have you ever had that experience? Just a neighbor can get your kids to do stuff you could never get them to do. It might simply be because they can access that other level of the body or the mind or the spirit. Anyway, more information, folks, giving you the tools to help you, uh, you know, grow your life. And by the way, if you personally are unemployed and failing to thrive and it's impacting your psyche, Let's get real. Go get some help. Go talk to somebody. See a psychologist. Just some ideas. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. Hour number one's in the books. We'll come back next hour. More fun right here on the Matt Townsend Show. everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Second hour of Life Fest 2015. Life Fest. Isn't that what you wear when you go on a ship? Sometimes. That's different than Life Fest, where we have a festival of life. When I went on my, the only cruise I've been on, I did find it kind of reassuring and scary at the same time when you have your life boat exercise at the beginning. Drill. You're like, this is the boat you need to run to. Like, oh. have, you, have you ever done that, though, where you're sitting there and you see your lifeboat team and you're like, we're dead. Yeah. There's no I'm way. I'm going to die with these people. I do not want to die with these people. That guy can't even row. <laughs> He's got a bad shoulder. Okay, I'm going to have to take over this boat. I already had my whole boat planned out. Exactly how I was going to save our lifeboat team. We're going to have to throw one over for chumming. There has to be a sacrifice. Somebody's got to go. There's only eight seats. One boats. must fall so the many can survive. Yes, I understand that. <laughs> I even figured out how we would decide what what person that would be. Rock, paper, scissor? We were going to have a race. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's survival of the fittest. Yep. Whoever's the slowest. Who's the oldest? It's like in the Serengeti, right? When the lion attacks the, the what are the, the, the gazelles? Yeah, you just have to outrun. The slowest gazelle is the one that gets caught. Every time. Yeah. Every time. That's true in the lifeboat drill. But on this, uh, on this ship, folks, we're not leaving anybody behind. The Matt Townsend Show. Wow. We keep everybody on board. Big hug. 
Did you feel we need a warm uh like an ah? Look, find us a James, take a note. Just grab the quote. Okay. I like warm hugs. Just do it. Uh we need a warm <laughs> hug. Okay. Okay. Try to have some audio version of a warm hug. Mm. Anyway, welcome to the program. Interesting uh, development in Oregon last night. What? Oregon took steps to broaden voter participation. Yes. By automatically registering people to vote. So it's so so it's not even a choice to register. You're just automatically registered. Governor Kate Brown, a Democrat, signed a bill. Of course, a Democrat. That's what is some people are Those saying Democrats. right now. Uh, they signed a bill that puts the burden of registration on the state instead of the voter. If a uh, every adult citizen in Oregon who has had business with the Department of Motor Vehicles since 2013 but is not registered to vote will receive a ballot in the mail at least 20 days before the next statewide election. The measure is expected to add about 300,000 voters to the rolls. Interesting. It, it does. It, I guess that kind of. I mean, that's a great solution. Getting everybody's, you know, registered like that. It seems like it's discriminating against anyone without a car or a motor vehicle. Yes. It also seems like. Well, no, because they those people could still go and vote. They could go register themselves. So yeah. you can still register. You can always register. But if you are if you going the through the motor vehicles, it, it automatically happens with your licensing. of. Then they will send you the ballot 20 days before. Will the state then help you vote if no. you don't want to vote? No. At that point, you it, you can still have the choice to vote or not. What if you want to vote but you really don't know how? Would you, Could you call the state and then they would send a representative to there's, help you fill out your ballot? There's probably a 1-800 number or something they provide. They give you information on how to vote if it's too hard to look at the paper and figure it, just, it out. I mean, again, I, I like it because we'll but get you, more people involved. But you can see that people would have pushback yeah. with the idea that voting there, – there's, there's people that feel that voting is a right and yeah. voting is a privilege and you should opt in – Instead of basically having to opt out. Well, and it seems like by opting in, you'd have an informed electorate. That's right? the other side of it. It's you're you're, you're, you're handing this out to people who apparently don't care because they're not yeah. registered to vote. So why should we encourage people that have no interest to be part of the voting process? Yeah. Hmm. So the Democrats did this, did they? In Oregon. It's Look the first state that. to do this. Interesting. Everywhere else, it's an opt-in format. <laughs> this is almost an opt-out. No. I'm going to bet the Republicans aren't going to like that. No. But you know what? Let's just then inform our electorate. Because they, they could paint this as more government inclu- uh, you know, yeah. intrusion into your life. Maybe you don't want to vote. Why are they forcing you? The, you sh- because, I just wanted my car license. Because Yeah, that, that's the don't other thing. Don't make me vote. Because voting's a right, you should also have the right to not vote. It's true. I'm, I think we should have a right to not have to license our car. If we're going to go that extreme. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Keep the man out of my life. I tell you, I forgot to license my car, relicense my car, register my car. You got the notice, right? I actually got a ticket. So did you get a notice? Because I was about five months over. And five months over? Yeah. Wow. The cop's like, do you know your car's not registered? <laughs> really? What? That's the dumbest thing. How do you get out of that? No, really? Are you sure? Go check. Can you go no, look I again? did, sir. That's why I pulled you over. <laughs> wow, that's a big, that's embarrassing. Is that a yeah. big ticket? Uh, he actually didn't. He just added it to the speeding ticket I was getting. Oh, okay. So it didn't feel like it was about my registration. It was, it was a more combo. like my speeding, right? Yeah, I think it was kind of a, a gimme. 
Because once he got me for the speeding, he's like, I'm just going to. I'm not going to charge you the extra. He could have impounded my car, apparently. The the, the very few times I, I get pulled over, just just a few times. Yeah, um, a week. I'm going, say, 20 over, and he goes, I'm going to knock it back to five over. Yeah. And I'm looking at him like, you're still giving me a ticket. I always it's not like, like oh, you're doing, I'm like, I mean, thank you, officer. You're saving me some thank money. You. but and Then you go find out that's a $200 ticket. Yeah. But you know what? 20 over is like a $300 ticket. So the rule is just don't speed. Isn't that weird when you're actually thanking the officer? Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was a great pullover. <laughs> Thank you for stopping me. In other news, expenditure mm-hmm. reports filed through July 2014 show that House Republicans spent almost $13,000 in taxpayer money on orders from fast food restaurant from the fast food restaurant Chick-fil-A. Really? Sarah Mims of the National Journal notes that the, the amount represents three, what, 3,900 original chicken sandwiches, an impressive feat since House Republicans only spent $345 on Chick-fil-A during the previous three years. Wow. That's a lot of Chick-fil-A. Apparently, Senator Lindsey Graham has a Chick-fil-A cater, had catered his birthday party each huh. year, <laughs> while House GOP orders Chick-fil-A for a Heritage Foundation monthly conversations with conservative series. So you walk in, have a conversation, there's a pile of Chick-fil-A for you. Mims reports that the scent of fried chicken practically permeates the walls of the Capitol. That place smells like a chicken factory. She also notes the GOP spending at the chicken chain has increased dramatically <laughs> after the company CEO spoke out against gay marriage. See, that's it. See, because they're a very like religious, yes. Christian-oriented organization. So that's why this is a news story, apparently. And, I mean, there's a lot of money going out. To... $13,000. Well, but again... It your, would have been spent somewhere. It would have been, yeah. Because if this was a Chuck E. Cheese, yeah. we'd all be like, okay. Huh, pizza. We all get that. Automated singing animals and a pizza. It's interesting. I don't mind me a good Chick-fil-A here and there. But my office does not permeate the smell of, it's not permeated with the smell of chicken. Some would big beg to differ. And I was, I, I went to the Capitol. Yeah. A couple did, years ago? Did smell any? Didn't smell, but that was a couple years ago, so it was pre-Chick-fil-A chicken. I mean, it could be worse. It could be other... Smells. Smells. It kind of smelled like disinfectant because it was kind of early and they had just scrubbed the floors. Yeah. So that was nice, I guess. More power to you, chicken people. Are, are you ready to cut the cable? Cut cable to cut my mother? Cut cable TV, cut your satellite, no. cut whatever service. No. People are doing this more and more. I know. My neighbor just approached They're me. going to s- the streaming options. Yeah. Apple, according to rumors, is in talks to offer a collection of about 25 TV networks to owners of Apple TVs, iPhones, and iPads as false sources close to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Apple is working with CBS, Fox, and Walt Disney, the owner of ABC, to create what they're calling a skinny bundle. That includes ESPN and FX. Uh, Apple is planning to formally announce the online TV service in June, launch it in late September. Prices between $30 and $40 a month with, uh, according to some sources, notably absent from the deal NBC because Apple's talks failed with Comcast, who owns NBC. Interesting. So Apple launching a TV service. And Apple TV lowered their price of Apple TV by $30 from well, 99 to 69 It's the version they've had out for four years. The old antiquated version? Yeah, they need to update it. Hmm. So, yeah, you lower it and you clean out some of the old models. And maybe with this it's new service, light. you launch a new version of Apple TV. This is exciting. I'm excited to cut the cable. 
I've well, had this really weird is, relationship with my cable company. It's now thirty to forty dollars for a bundle. Yeah. Right. Right. The idea was to go a la carte and pick the channels you want. They're never going to let you pick what channels you want. It's just these channels. Will, you'll get ESPN and Disney at the same time. It reminds the same me company. of Putin. And by the time you get to the point where you decide, Matt, that you want to cut the cable, it's going to cost exactly the same as your cable to cut the cable. Well, it's almost for streaming not even worth cutting. And all your streaming options will be owned by the people who own the cable services that you now have. So you'll move from one service to another, and they'll still have all your money. What a ripoff. That's how it'll work. Okay, I'm mad. You ruined my day. But hey, there's more TV coming. Let's go to something happy, happier. Have you ever heard of a superbug? <laughs> superbugs. Superbugs. These, this bacteria, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, infections that can't be dealt with because the antibiotics aren't working. Did you know that at least 2 million people contract an infection with a superbug every year? 23,000 people die. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about these superbugs. What should you be doing? Where do these bugs live? How do we uh, protect ourselves, our families against it? All of that and more when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yearly in the United States, at least 2 million people contract an infection from bacteria that is antibiotic-resistant. From those 2 million, at least 23,000 die annually. In response, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has recently categorized the superbugs into three categories based on how many are becoming sick and how many victims are dying because of that. The categories are basically urgent, serious, and concerning. From the CDC, joining us to discuss superbugs is Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, who is uh, one of the spokespeople there for the CDC. Dr. Srinivasan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much, Matt. Appreciate you having me. Great to have you, and we need some education on this, uh, this concept of superbugs. I know it's in the news a lot. UCLA had an issue with it um, a, a little while ago. Teach us, what is a superbug? Yeah, you know, so the, the term superbug obviously is not a, not a medical term right. that's used, but it's, a, it's a certainly a handy term to help people understand the challenge that we face with antibiotic resistance. When we talk about resistant bacteria, what we're generally referring to is uh, a bacteria that your doctor or nurse doesn't have the antibiotic that they'd like to use to give you. So for every bacteria, we generally have you know, an agent that we turn to hmm. as the first choice for the one that we'd use to treat your infection, the one that's been maybe demonstrated to be the most effective or has the fewest side effects. So when drugs become resistant, that means we've lost that first option. And so now we need to turn to a second option or maybe a third option. And we've coined this, this term superbugs has been uh, coined to refer to the bacteria for which we have maybe very, very few good options, like we're using the fourth 
best okay. option or the yeah. fifth best option. Or in some cases, Matt, th- these are bacteria that are 100% resistant. There are zero options to Ooh. treat some of these patients. And this is something that's happening today in our hospitals around the country. People are developing infections for which we have no antibiotics that are effective to treatment, treat them. Uh, so this is the challenge that we face with antibiotic resistance, and it's why this term, I think, has been, uh, been generated to try and help people understand that this is a, a serious, serious problem that threatens the lives of, of our patients. Now, it's interesting because if I uh, – so I could get uh, one of these – one of these these um, superbugs, let's call it, and yet I could have gone my entire life hardly ever taking antibiotics and still have a super bacteria in me that is resistant to anything. You know, that that's true, and that's one of the the great dilemmas we face with antibiotic use and resistance in society. Uh, antibiotics are a very special and unique group of drugs because the way we use them in one individual can have ramifications for everybody else, hmm. for even for people who don't get exposed to the drug. So, yeah. you know, it's very different. If, I, if I'm, a, I'm, I'm a physician, I'm an ID doctor, if I prescribe an antihypertensive drug and I, I do a bad job with it, that's to the detriment of my patient, but it doesn't affect anybody else. Right. Now, when I go into the hospital and I, if I start prescribing drug antibiotics really badly and breed these resistant organisms, well, those can spread, and they can spread to the patients, uh, other patients who I'm seeing, the patients in the rooms around uh, my individual patient. So all of a sudden, my bad use of antibiotics in one individual can have an impact on other people who were never exposed to that drug. And it's one of the reasons why I like to say that, you know, truly with antibiotic use, we are only as strong as our weakest link. We all have, we're all in this same boat together. It's the it's the same uh, argument we were hearing about vaccinations that the vaccine it's kind of a community effect. I can't remember the name of that. Uh, her, it's called herd immunity. Herd immunity. About That's right. So this is actually herd and what herd herd susceptibility. Susceptibility. We're, oh my we're all uh, you know when we're in the hospital and we're ill and our immune systems are compromised, uh, we are at high risk for infections and for uh, these organisms being spread. And it oftentimes, as you were pointing out, it, it, you may not have received uh, a lot of antibiotics, mm-hmm. but if you get exposed to one of these organisms, you can be at risk. Wow. And it's, I mean, that is so interesting because I, I always thought, well, yeah, I'll just be really careful with the antibiotics I'm using. But again, if if some community or one or two or 10 doctors are, are mis, you know, prescribing that that can become a problem as well. Talk about uh, the threats. I mean, I know that there's there's a variety of these types of superbugs. What are what are some of the biggest threats we need to worry about? What are they called? Yeah, how are they impact? Let me highlight a couple for you. Yeah. One that uh, two two of which uh, two of the ones that have uh, very much been in the news recently. Um, one of them is called a Clostridium difficile, and this is a bacteria that's not uh, a resistant organism. And so you know, people sometimes get confused. Well, why are we talking about this with this 
same group of, of superbugs. Mm -hmm. But Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that can live in our intestines. And what happens is that when we get antibiotics that kill off our good bacteria, the Clostridium difficile that's in our intestine, they begin to divide and they begin to take over. Hmm. And they can cause uh, very serious uh, diarrhea infections. And these are infections that can be uh, life-threatening in some cases. And they're very common. We know every year that about a half a million patients will get this type of Clostridium difficile diarrhea. And we know that the overwhelming majority of them were people who were exposed to antibiotics as their the main risk for getting Clostridium difficile oh, because wow. it killed off their good bacteria in their gut. And we know that about 15,000 of those patients will die of these infections, so a very serious infection, mm. and particularly, particularly serious in, in our older patients. The other organism that I think has very much been in the news and is in some ways kind of the poster child for the, the superbug problem is a group of organisms actually called CRE, which stands for Carbapenem Resistant Enterobacteriaceae, and that's Yuck. why we call it CRE. <laughs> um, but these are a group, a family of organisms that have really developed major resistance to antibiotics. There are very few options left to treat people who develop infections with CRE. And in some instances, uh, this is one where there truly are no options to treat uh, infections with CRE. They're completely resistant to all antibiotics. Mm. And these two organisms are quite different. CRE is much less common than Clostridium difficile. CRE infections are largely limited to hospital settings and even within hospitals are most commonly found uh, in our patients who are most vulnerable, patients in intensive care units with or with very, very weakened immune systems, organ transplant patients, our cancer patients. And of course, these are the patients who we are uh, most most worried about and, and most eager to protect from these types of infections and because they are the ones who are at most risk for these types of drug-resistant infections. Clostridium difficile is, is really uh, an issue everywhere. Uh, we see uh, cases of Clostridium difficile very commonly in our hospitals, but also in our nursing homes and even hmm. outside of hospitals, people are at risk. So those are two good examples of how the issue of uh, antibiotic resistance and antibiotic use and overuse uh, can impact different people. So you have actually then categorized, uh, the CDC is categorizing kind of the risk level, just like the terrorism threat level. And, and so I guess, is, is CRE a red it is. Level? It is indeed. We, we, we call that an urgent threat. It's, it's an, an issue that uh, needs urgent attention to address, to bring under control. Uh, and that's why we are focusing a lot of our efforts on trying to raise awareness about the problem of CRE, but more importantly, to raise awareness about the steps that we can take right now to prevent CRE from developing and from spreading. Yeah. There's been quite a bit of, of good work that's been done around the country. And the good news is we know how to stop CRE. Oh, good. We know that if we can improve the use of antibiotics, that we do a good job of slowing the 
development of this resistance. And if we do a good job with what we call infection control, with, uh, with uh, basic attention to things like hand hygiene, wearing gloves and gowns when we're supposed to, cleaning equipment properly, we can do a very good job of stopping CRE from spreading if it does develop. Okay. And indeed, we have worked, uh, CDC has worked with hospitals around the country who have had uh, tremendous success in uh, rooting out CRE uh, once they've had these infections. But in our opinion, the key is to catch it early. This is truly one of those instances where uh, an ounce of prevention is worth 10 pounds of cure, if Mm. you will. Well, in a way, that's, I think, it's so interesting why we need the CDC on on, on their game, right? Because A, being educated right now, like you're teaching us, is so valuable, but also to know that there's somebody that's thinking through this and 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 preparing and trying to prevent it uh to me is so is so uh you know helpful and, and empowering to me we're going to take a break uh when we come back i'm going to ask dr arjun uh Srinivasan more about what we should just be doing as the average person to to make sure we're we're protected from this the best we can what can we also do uh maybe with our own you know healthcare what should we be asking our doctors you know, how could we be more careful with the antibiotics we're taking more with uh, the spokesperson from the CDC, Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, after the, this break right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, who is a spokesperson for the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, he's teaching us about one of the new moves by the CDC to categorize superbugs into three categories um, and urgent, basically serious and concerning He's been teaching us also about two of the more, uh, I guess, pernicious superbugs, CRE and C. diff. Uh, Dr. Srinivasan, Srinivasan, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Great to have you and have, man, just very basic questions answered for us. So when it comes down to it, how at risk is just the average person? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and I think it's important for people to to understand what the risks really are. For many of these uh, highly drug resistant infections, things like the CRE, the ones that are very difficult to treat or even untreatable, most of us are not. Uh, actually at much risk for these infections. These are infections that these CRE infections that are really limited to hospital settings and even in hospital settings are really uh, generally found in our our sickest and most vulnerable patients. Hmm. So we don't want to uh, have people worry that, you know, if they get uh, pneumonia uh, at home that they could have, uh, you know, CRE. 
That said, the bacteria that do cause infections out in the community, uh, there are some of those that are becoming more difficult to treat. So even garden variety pneumonias uh, are becoming more difficult to treat. They're becoming resistant to uh, more of the agents we'd like to use. A common sexually transmitted infection, gonorrhea, has uh, also become much more uh, challenging to treat, and that is another one of the threats that uh, CDC does consider to be an urgent threat because we're running out of uh, oral pills to mm. treat uh, people who develop gonorrhea. So it used to be that if the infection developed, you could treat it with an oral medication. Now, in some instances, it requires an intravenous or injectable medication, and that's obviously a, a serious issue. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the take-home message is that no one is, uh, no one is spared from the threats posed by antibiotic resistance, but some of these uh, truly uh, superbug, very, very resistant bacteria are ones that do tend to be limited more to our healthcare settings. Of course, that's the last place where we want them <laughs> right. because that's where our most vulnerable patients are. What, why is it so attached to the, the healthcare settings? It seems like I always thought that was the cleanest place on earth. Well, that's one of the, the, the reasons, there are a number of reasons why these most resistant organisms tend to be in hospitals. And predominantly, it's because it's where the sickest people are. Right. So the people who are at higher, highest risk to develop these infections, they're patients who are oftentimes ill. A large number of patients who get admitted to hospitals get antibiotics. Uh, we know, Matt, that in fact, that basically one out of every two patients who gets admitted to a hospital is going to get an antibiotic during their hospital stay. And so the, the concentration of antibiotic use in hospitals is very, very high. And you've got a population that's uh, heavily exposed to antibiotics, which uh, creates the risks to breed this resistance. And then you've got a lot of uh, ill people in a confined space uh, who are getting health care, which poses all of those risks for spread of these organisms right. as well. With family, visitors, people visiting. Yeah. You know, actually, the, the predominant mode of transmission has, is mostly from, uh, unfortunately, from, from us. We, we can it. be our own worst enemy as health care providers. Yeah. Um, we are the ones who generally uh, are, transmit these organisms. You know, when patients and visitors come to the hospital, they usually are coming just to see their, their loved one and then leave. But when I'm in the hospital, when when I'm rounding, I'm going from patient to patient to patient. And that means that I've got to be really careful. I have to, to clean my hands uh, carefully before and after I, I see my patients. I have to read the signs that are on the door that tell me whether or not I need to wear a gown or gloves when I uh, go into the room. So it you know, really calls on healthcare providers to be very vigilant for not only how we use antibiotics, but also how we practice what we call infection control. How do we uh, protect ourselves? So just the average citizen, what, what should we be watching out for? How should we try to avoid, you know, the unnecessary use of antibiotics and treatment? You know, a lot of times we feel like we're just doing what our doctor's telling us to do. What should we be doing? It's a good point, Matt, because there's a lot that all of us can be doing. Um, 
you know, one of the things that we obviously recommend very heavily is that people get their recommended immunizations. If you need a, a pneumonia vaccine, you should get that. Uh, every year, you should get your influenza vaccine. And, you know, obviously, the pneumonia vaccine uh, protects you from getting uh, a pneumonia. And so that's great. That's one less infection that you have to be worried about. And the influenza vaccine, the reason that we recommend that one is it protects you from getting the flu. And oftentimes, what we see happening is people will sometimes come into the, the doctor, uh, come into the office with, uh, with the flu. But if they haven't gotten their flu shot and people don't know if they have a flu or have a bacterial infection, they'll sometimes get yeah. antibiotics unnecessarily. So getting your flu shot every year uh, decreases the chance that you'll develop uh, influenza and end up showing up in your doctor's office so it could decrease your risks of getting exposed to an unnecessary antibiotic. We recommend that people clean their hands carefully. We know that hand-to-hand -hand transmission of colds and those kinds of things are one of the very uh, – one of the very best ways to prevent the spread of those types of infections is to clean your hands. So that's something that all of us can do. The other thing that we can do is, is I think, really engage in discussions with our healthcare team um, to find out, you know, if your doctor says is prescribing you an antibiotic, uh, find out if they are prescribing you the antibiotic because you need the antibiotic or because they think that you want the antibiotic. What we've heard sometimes from, uh, from physicians, there's this very interesting disconnect between uh, what physicians think patients want and what patients say they want. So sometimes we've mm. done surveys where doctors say, oh, well, when that patient comes to me and has a cold, they expect to get antibiotics. So sometimes even if I'm on the fence, I'm going to go ahead and prescribe them. And what we hear from patients is they don't necessarily want an antibiotic. They want to know what might be causing their symptoms and want some education about what they can do. Mm -hmm. So simply asking that question to say, you know, do, do I really need an antibiotic? What are the pros and cons? Uh, opens that door for you and your provider to have a discussion to say, you know, maybe not. Maybe uh, you don't need an antibiotic for this particular uh, cold. Uh, why don't you uh, monitor it and uh, see how it's doing? We know that colds uh, almost never respond to antibiotic. They're almost always caused by viruses. Even in the hospitals, I think there are things that we can do when we or our loved ones get admitted. We always encourage people to ask questions about the steps that the hospital is taking to improve antibiotic use and to uh, keep uh, prevent the spread of infections. I mean, that, it really is. It's a... It's it's a it's an important thing. This is the future. I mean, if we're doing this at this rate now, what what does the future look like? You know, that that is what we're very concerned about. And we, you know, are are, are optimistic that if we take aggressive action right now, that we do have a chance to make a big difference and stem this tide of resistance. Uh, and in fact, uh, folks might be aware that the uh, president has called for a national and very aggressive effort to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria. There is, for the first time, a national plan, a national strategy that the president announced uh, last fall to combat these bacteria. And in his uh, budget for, the, for 2016, he has asked for, uh, from, from Congress uh, for Congress to make a major investment in all of the agencies that are working to combat antibiotic resistance, including CDC. He's asked for a significant investment in our efforts to combat 
this type of resistance, which, uh, as you point out, is, is critically needed right yeah. now. Isn't there um, – aren't antibiotics being used in some of our food sources uh, in order to help animals gain weight and you know, to make sure that – to decrease infections? Isn't it actually in our food as well? That's exactly right. There are antibiotics that are used in, in, throughout the agricultural industry. Uh, and there is, uh, as you're pointing out, some degree of controversy about how those antibiotics are used. They're not always used just to treat uh, sick animals. There are those who point out that sometimes the antibiotics might be used to help animals grow faster or to uh, prevent them from getting infections when mm. they're in uh, crowded conditions. And there have been a number of calls to, to really limit the use of, of antibiotics in agriculture. And, you know, my uh, take on that is that's, you know, obviously something that is, is certainly quite important. We don't want to keep antibiotics away from animals yeah, that you, need them. Yeah, right. We want to be responsible about how we're using antibiotics in agriculture, just like we want to be responsible about how we're using them in humans. It really is. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of the perfect storm. It reminds me of, you know, you see all the zombie apocalypse stuff. But in the end, I, I sit there. It's a super bug. And we're smart people. So I'm assuming we will eventually figure this out. Do we get ahead of this ever? Well, I think we I think we do. And I think we have. I think we know the types of steps that we need to take. And so that, that is the good news. Yeah. The good news is we know how to make progress here. The challenge now is to actually put that information into practice. It's not just enough to know how to do it. We actually have to do it. And that's where I think some of these uh, efforts to call on, you know, uh, a national galvanizing of efforts to combat these bacteria, along with the resources that are necessary to help uh, hospitals, healthcare providers, health departments, um, help all of us do what we need to do. Yeah. I mean, it seems, again, education and then practice. Do what we're learning. Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, so appreciate uh, your very simple explanation of all of this. And uh, again, I, I challenge all of us to to uh, to follow that great advice from Dr. Arjun Srinivasan. Thanks again for joining us. Um, it really is, when you think about it, folks, it's learning, right? You got to know, but you also got to do. And remember, just because you know, you know how important it is to watch out for antibiotic use and overuse, that you're still susceptible because there's many, many people that don't necessarily pay attention. So let's just bring it up in our conversations a little bit more. Talk about it. And don't just fear it. Let's do something about it. We're going to take a break, come back, uh, do some more news, some more headlines, and then, uh, you know, take another break. That's kind of what the show's about is break, learn, break, learn, break, learn. Good stuff, though, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. friends that's the hoedown music it means it's time to wrap up hour number two of the matt townsend show <laughs> you hear that that's to all of our dolphin listeners out there <laughs> <laughs> flipper that's my favorite part of the song right there 
You know, the superbugs, uh, that's kind of a scary deal. We didn't even get into staff, MRSA, all those others, but I'm, I'm assuming those are a little bit lower on the categorization list because he talked about the ugly ones. Staff. I mean, that's the one. So hear. to stop them, it has to be at the hospital. Apparently. It makes you through wonder. Through their if, processes, through their yeah. going through and making sure everything's clean. Yeah. There's nothing really we can do. Maybe don't go to the hospital. That's not really an option. When you need a hospital, you kind of need a hospital. I mean, it's sad because they're trying to help, and yet they might be cross-infecting. And again, we were so worried about Ebola. Yeah. And yet 27,000 people die in the United States from this a year. That's, I mean, those are some big numbers. So, you know, watch out. Wash your hands. Be careful. Say no to antibiotics. Just say no. That's a new, See, that's my, a new program. See, my son, when, you know, childhood ear infections are... Very common. I know. My child ends up with double ear infections. Ah, uh, see, but, but you got to do it. He's the kind of kid that doesn't react to it at all. So you have no idea. He's not even touching his ears. It just he just feels pain. He feels no pain. I I guess if that's what's happening. But he goes to the doctor, and the first thing they said was antibiotics. Yeah. And I said, is there another option? Do what? we need to start my kid on antibiotics? What, what did I, they say? Well, you could get him a teddy bear. Yeah. There's really. I mean, there's some herbal yeah. things you could try, but they're, you know, not necessarily tested to the point where we know if they're going to work or not. You might just be giving your kid a lot of good things that really aren't helping him. It's like, how do I help my kid? And is antibiotics really where we need to go right here? And she said, yes. Well, and so. again, you're not necessarily even fighting the antibiotic use today. You're fighting the use of antibiotics for the last 30 years has created yes. the superbug kind of mentality so your boy actually needs the antibiotic well if he takes now the more he takes antibiotics the more he's resistant the stuff that's in him it doesn't work in him versus now the superbugs is you know outside outside the body but within the body the more you take those the less resistant they work on you again he he is at a stage where he actually needs it so this is the proper use of an antibiotic compared to if he did this every month he may need his tubes done in his ears, not just antibiotics. You know, he yeah. might need something else. Right. See, this is why it's so complicated. <sighs> Super bugs. But you know what? Honestly, that's, we're we're smart people. The CDC, Doctor Arjun Srinivasan. Come on, he's all over it, and they just got more money. So you know that's good. So fix it. Yeah, I I don't think this is going to be fixed, but it could be improved, controlled, and dramatically improved. improved. Um, by the way, I just saw that Coke uh, is su- is suggesting that, and some dietitians actually say Coca Cola works as a as a snack. Dietitians who work for Coke, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, the report came out, and the, they started tracking back, and they found that wait, some of these people actually work for Coca Cola. We have a network of dietitians. But what is it? They're saying that Coca-Cola could be nutritious, allegedly. Well, sure. In the right amount. Well, I mean, everybody needs sugar and other assorted chemicals. (laughs) Right. So I'm assuming instead of having, you know, 
instead of having that sugary yeah, cut like the treat, three the three candy bars out of your day and have a have a drink coke but they're hmm. talking about a mini coke a mini coke so when you go to the grocery store it's the small little yeah it's like 100 cc's of coke yeah coca-cola we should say you get yeah qualify that <laughs> it's yeah. 100 cc's of the beverage coca-cola by by and, and so you have the mini, not the full size can. Yeah, no, not what you're normally used to. Not but the, the smaller, super, not the super big. Gold. The small version is nutritious in small amounts. Sure, according to Coca Cola nutritionists <laughs> and dietitians. I mean, you don't want to be down because <laughs> Pepsi is the same way. I'm sure it also could be used as a nutritious snack. So there you go. We've got a dietitian, actually, a, an expert that's going to be talking about obesity in a few minutes. We're going to ask her what she thinks. Who knows? Oh, also the uh, that law they're talking about in Puerto Rico, yeah, where they want to charge the parents or fine them, I guess, if their child is obese. Yeah, which I see is you know troubling on how to enforce that. Yeah, basically, because uh, they're going to use the the BMI, I believe. The uh, article, you said. know what BMI, the body matrix index, Bo- yeah, that body that mass index, mass index. Uh, that contraption, yeah, worst thing since calculus. Who invented the BMI? And I, I'd like to see the doctor that that fits that. For my height, I believe I'm supposed to be about 180 pounds, which I haven't been since like the sixth grade. Yeah, me too. I'm supposed to be 170. since, And I've been that since I was four. 170? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, it, it, it's not the best measure. But it's what's out there. So people, like insurance companies, use that to judge your your insurance rates. You know why? I've figured it all out. It's a contraption that we use to complicate the situation so we can just say no easier. Yeah. You're fat. BMI says so. Well, how do you know? Well, it's just a simple equation. And then they explain the equation. Not so simple. Hmm. We're going to ask her about that. Judith Wortman is going to be joining us next hour. Apparently, uh, Coke, a sensible snack, 100 cc's of it. Don't Pepsi have too. more than 200 yeah. and more, well, more than 100. Yeah, well, yeah, you'll calcify your bones. Plus, your BMI will start to vibrate. Yeah. Once your BMI starts vibrating, you're getting fat. I know that because I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm a different kind of doctor. Any other news? Maybe, by the way, that's what's killing those birds in Idaho. Yeah, what is that about? You mentioned that briefly. Well, it's sad. Some form of cholera among Hundreds geese? or thousands of white geese, is that what they're called? Snow geese. Snow geese. Are falling out of the skies. Thousands. Do you know, I mean, that's bad. And they've got avian ca- uh, cholera. Avian cholera. Well, have you seen that movie, The Core? It came out uh, a number of years ago. No, I don't watch movies like that. Well, I'm just saying that maybe this isn't a superbug at all or cholera. What if it, the core has stopped spinning and the world is coming to an end? It's more of an electromagnetic issue that's messing up their in in their navigation system to yeah. fly. Well, yep. that would be weird. Because, Causing the crash. And- well, maybe what's happening, though, is – see, these these birds actually died of a highly contagious disease, which is caused by bacteria that can survive in soil and water for up to four months. Oh, wow. Uh, it doesn't mention the core. That's strange. Maybe maybe that's in the extended version of that article. <laughs> I, I don't know. These geese, 2,000 snow geese, just fell right out of the sky, migrating to nesting grounds in the northern coast of Alaska. 
boom, 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 boom. Honey, is it raining? Nope. Snow geese are falling. Just snow geese. Can you imagine what that would look like? Yeah, those are big birds. And then, this is what's scary, too. The bald eagles start landing and start, you know, scavenging yes. yeah, on the dead birds, which is just cross-infecting. Hmm. So you think superbugs are bad. Yeah. Avian cholera, it'll knock you out of the air. Literally. Literally. So, I mean, that's just scary. By the way, this, these wintering grounds go all the way down from Mexico to Alaska. So these birds are going to make it all the way up and down this corridor. So if you're just driving and you see a white goose fall out of the air, yep. I wouldn't touch it. Don't take it home. Don't eat it. Don't cook it. Again, I'm not that kind of a doctor, but I, I'd go with avian cholera. It's a public service. A public service announcement brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio. Why are you smiling like that, James? We're here to help. Yeah, we're giving people tools. Stay away from avian cholera. Don't eat sick birds. Do yep. not eat sick birds. Don't eat roadkill. Let's just add that yeah. to the list. Just as a general rule, yeah. if it's dead on the side of the road. You know, a lot of times, dead, a lot of dead fish are just dying. I think that's because of the core. They're just floating up onto the shore. If you have dead fish floating up on the shore, don't eat those. Another great message brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this hour talking about obesity, what we should do with our families to decrease the, uh, the, the impact, actually de- decrease the odds of our family gaining weight, becoming obese. Up next. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your life coach, your guide on the side. Today, I will be your health advisor, helping you learn how to encourage healthier eating habits, behaviors for those that you love. More kale. More kale. Eat more kale. Less Coke. That would probably be a good rule to live by. Again, not disrespecting Coke. It could be Pepsi. It could be Mountain Dew. And you can still have some. It could just be any sugary drink. Just don't have a lot. Yeah. You can't have enough kale. Yes, you can. I have yet, I think... I don't think I've ever had kale. I don't think I have either. Uh, No. Kaylee's going to bring us in some kale chips. One of our student producers? Yeah. Hmm. And I'm like, could you bring a hamburger with those chips? Because that would help the kale go down. A lot of ketchup with those chips. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Something to cover up. Sounds really good. Uh, we've got a great show. Coming up, Judith Wortman will be with us in just a bit talking about how to create healthier habits with your kids. And it all comes from that uh, story we've talked about many times from Puerto Rico where a, a legislature was – they were proposing – um, a new law that basically said if you don't – if your kids gain weight and become obese, guess what? We're going to charge you. We're going to fine you. And uh, we're going to talk about if that's the best way, $500 fine if your child is obese. That's kind of scary. We're going to talk about if that's really the best way to be doing this. 
there's got to be better ways than fining parents. I mean, I know I was fined all through college for late fees and everything. Didn't help. No. You now, if you had fined my mother, that may have helped. <laughs> Poor lady. Anyway, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Have you changed your behavior when it comes to when you go online? When you use the internet, email. Have I changed my behavior? When you put, submit information into certain documents and you put them online. I'm very careful, but I'm probably getting lazier about it. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? A new study reports that 87% of Americans have heard about the NSA surveillance program leaked by Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. 34% of those have taken at least one step in hiding or shielding their information from the government. One step? Yes, at least one step. What would that step be? Change a password. Uh, I know uh, a lot of websites have two-step authentication, yeah, yeah. so you put in a password, you can get a text message, you put in a number, and that's how you access the website, different things like that. Someday it's just going to be, you're just going to need to give like a blood sample. They already have biometrics with thumbprint scanners. Oh, man. See, but thumbprint would be immediate. I think it needs to be a seven-day delay where they take a blood so sample. How are we going to access something? You just, you just know it's seven, seven days. days. It used to Plan be ahead. seven years to get something. Now it's just going to be seven days. I don't think that'll work. It's got to be immediate. Whatever. It's got to be quick and easy. Of the 34%, 17% they're, they're change their privacy settings on social media. 15% use social media less. Hmm. 15% have avoided certain apps, and 13% have uninstalled apps. If you think about it, it sounds like there's about 15% of the population that are very nervous people. Yes, because you're, <laughs> I mean, you start looking at the number here, it starts at 87%. Have you heard of Edward Snowden? Yeah. Of those 87%, 34% made one step, and then <laughs> it starts breaking down, like, of that, yeah. and they start breaking this yeah. down to, as you said, there's 15% of the country that's really nervous. And that even know who Edward Snowden probably is right. I mean, we don't even know. Most people wouldn't. Oh yeah, I know him. You know, most people just feel secure because they still can see Facebook. They still get their Netflix the way they want to. Yeah. I mean, they don't realize that the banks have been totally exposed. Some banks. Oh well. Fun stuff. Even Apple Pay might yeah. be exposed. I was reading last week. Oh great. Yeah, there I, might I was be just an issue about there. to sign up. So good job. A California man spray-painted his face black in an effort to camouflage himself and avoid arrest, police say. Joe Espinoza, 23, was arrested on Saturday night facing charges of possession of stolen property and theft of a vehicle. Uh, ABC News reports a spokesperson for the local police department confirms that spray-painting his face in an effort to camouflage didn't work. But to camouflage his face or, I mean, it sounds racist. It's blackface. He took a spray Does paint can. Does he not can. know that that's know. not socially acceptable? It's not socially acceptable. But you see the pictures online. His face is stained black. Oh, it will geez. be that way for a while. I mean, this is this is what you're up against. You. This is Darwin in action. This is right. Yeah, but see, in, the, in Darwin, theory. he would have been eaten by a tiger. But in our society, he gets caught and shoved into, you know, the... Wait till he gets into prison with blackface. Pr- that's what I'm thinking. He's going to have a lot of problems you once know, he gets in there. What's your problem? I was just trying to... <laughs> then the, the explanation's going to get him beat up alone. Well, can't you just see this guy spray painting his face? Like, it's spray paint. I mean, that's, you know, poison. Yeah. 
Just hold your breath, close your eyes. And... Do you want your hands done? <laughs> no, just my face. I'm going to wear a glove. It's just his face. It's really funny. Oh, boy. A company, uh, South by Southwest, do you know what that is down in Austin? No. It is a convention that used to be about art. Now it's about technology and really keeping Austin weird is something people say a lot around. Keeping Austin weird? Yeah. I love Austin. Yeah. So this, it, it's turned into a, a mini technology conference. Okay. And so you go down there, there's lots of different ideas. People have products and they're you know selling things. A company named Aeromobile is making a flying luxury car. They plan to get those up in the air by 2017 <laughs> to help drivers escape the hassle of traffic, airports, and crumbling infrastructure. What 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 about like power lines? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After a pilot a piloted version hits the roads and air, Aeromobile plans to release a self-piloting autoplane. The autoplane flyer Ubercar has envisioned they have envisions of making this like an Uber yeah. or a Lyft type yeah. service. And you can just tap on the app on your phone and here comes the flying car. <laughs> this car lands in the middle of the interstate. Lands on the road, picks you up. It'll have a hybrid engine. It'll be able to fly 900 miles, four seats, and mm. a parachute for each passenger. Wow. Got a parachute. We take care of you. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Holy cow. They want to turn this into a drone service that you, you can like request. Yeah. It flies to you. You get in. You tell it where, it where to go, and it flies you where you need to go. Interesting. Uh, seems like they're ahead of the curve here. <laughs> a little bit. I don't think this is going <laughs> to happen. Because I don't even think there is a flying car that yeah. exists, right? And there's the car. They have a prototype of the car. We're looking at a computer here. It actually looks like a Nerf Throby toy. That yeah, it you... does. It looks like a Nerf dart. Yeah, you just put the human in the Nerf dart, and then you just throw the Nerf dart. <laughs> I think they've got a ways to go. But, you know, it's neat that they're trying to, like, corner their market. We're like the Uber of flying <laughs> that's transportation. That's how they're selling it. They're the we're Uber of flying. We're calling it Lyft, but we're not using the word. We're not using the letter Y. It's L I E Y F T. Anyway, I don't know. It's good to have people that are thinking and trying to push outside the box and have different ideas. <laughs> this one may crash, literally. Well, by the way, in fact, we've had a theme of people pushing out of the box, yes. like the guy spray paints his face. Black, which he thought was a brilliant idea. Thought. He thought he was on the cutting edge of criminal behavior and activity. Spraying blackface. Okay. To me, this is the same thing. Okay. Flying airplane cars. That same level of wishful thinking? I mean, I would just, let's just get it down to where people can actually drive cars first. Then let's get to the point where we've removed all power lines. Seems like a problem. Some cities. Yeah. You're landing your... Oh, is that your Uber car? Yeah, it's coming to get me. Shouldn't watch out for those <laughs> power, power lines? lines? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fine because there's parachutes in there. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone gets a parachute, so it's safe. Yeah. There's no way that could be a problem. That's true. What's the worst thing that could happen? Hmm. <sighs> you know, America, you got you to gotta love them. We're trying. Entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. Look at that. Cutting edge. Cutting edge. You never thought of flying cars. Oh, I did when I was like six. Yeah, I know. The article I read referenced the Jetsons a lot. I don't want to be negative about it. It just it seems like we got other problems to solve first. Come on. One of them might be obesity. Right? There's it's an epidemic, folks. It is an epidemic. 
We've got Judith Wertman joining us after this break, folks, and she's going to walk us through the healthy way to encourage behavioral change when it comes to your food, your eating habits. Sure, in Puerto Rico, you could just be fined if your child is overweight. Judith is going to teach us other ways to create healthier habits around our own health. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back right after this break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as Americans, we've become accustomed to the idea that we need everything done fast. We fill our days with, you know, fast food, fast cars, I guess. And interestingly, uh, we are also on the path, the fast track to obesity. In America today, two-thirds of adults and nearly one-third of children are overweight or dealing with obesity. And, uh, you know... There's a lot of complexity to this. And so we wanted to invite in Dr. Judith Wertman, a doctor in cell biology, former director of the research program in women's health at the MIT Clinical Research Center. She's here with us today discussing uh, about how to make healthier choices and how we can fight obesity. Dr. Wertman is the founder of Triad, which is a Harvard Hospital weight loss center. She's also written five books. Dr. Wertman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be on. So great to have you. Now, I know you heard about that proposed law in Puerto Rico where they're going to find parents potentially of obese children. And it it just seems like it is an epidemic. And even so in Puerto Rico, they even have higher rates of child obesity. But there's got to be better ways to, to manage obesity, Right. Of course, and I, I think it's a very important problem because, you know, if you can make your children thinner, then maybe the parents themselves will eat better, and certainly when the children grow up, they will have much better eating habits, and so their children have a less chance to get fat. But the reasons that the kids are fat are, as you said, complex. And I think you have to look at what happens not only in the home, but also in the school and in parties and where people, and kids go and eat uh, to eat away from home. You know, what we eat as children really depends on what our parents feed us. Right. Because when we're infants, we don't know that our parents may uh, be vegans or they may be meat and potato people. They may be dessert eaters or they may think that sugar is, uh, you know, akin to opium and will never appear in the house. So many of our early food habits are learned from our parents. And I think the people in Puerto Rico are in a way correct by saying, look, if, if you have parents who feel that, you know, a good snack is something like fried pork rinds <laughs> or... Right. Or, you know, or exercise means getting up and uh, turning on and off the rem- the TV set because your <laughs> your remote's out of battery. Your remote is just you know died. Right. <laughs> you know that's what you do for the week. Um, you know, clearly you're going to have a better chance of growing up obese. And certainly, if you have parents who really feel that vegetables and fruit belong on the table, and you should eat a salad every day rather than a potato chips, and you know go out and play outside in the backyard rather than sitting in front of your computer, you have a better chance of growing up thin. But the the reason, however, that to, to really make people um, thinner really doesn't start yeah. with the kids. It has to start with the parents. And I love your emphasis because, I mean, parents, we have to get the fact that 
we impact, we influence our children. So to just kind of poo-poo that idea, not going to work. But obesity is real. It's a real it's an epidemic. It's 18 percent, I think, in mainland United States. Uh, children are suffering from obesity. Just to explain what obesity is. Okay. Yes. Well, you know, obesity really depends. Uh, it is defined by your height and ha- your weight. And if you uh, go through a very easy sort of equation, you can figure out that maybe for your height, you you um, obviously are weighing, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds too much. And what the problem with childhood obesity is that oftentimes it's seen as young as, you know, a child who may be a year and a half or two years old. And, and it continues through uh, elementary school and, and, a, and into teenage years. You don't, you know something, do you really need to go to a doctor to show that somebody yeah. is obese? I mean, it's pretty right. obvious. If, yeah. if you're in the chubby size or, or your supersized clothes, I mean, you don't need somebody to say, hey, I think your child ought to go on a diet. But but part of it is 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 obviously the food. And one of the things that people should think about, they I'm sure they're aware of this, how many meals do people even eat at home? Oh, it's true. Um, how many meals do their parents get involved in serving them? Think of a kid who goes to daycare, preschool, yeah. gets perhaps breakfast and lunch at school, maybe goes to a friend's house after school for a play date, or goes to a birthday party, or goes on an outing. How many parents take their kids out to fast food restaurants, quick serve restaurants, for a meal maybe on the weekends, or if their parents are both working, which many of them are doing, they don't have time to make dinner, so there's takeout. How many parents, you know, soccer moms, as it were, are driving their kids from one after-school activity to another? And I remember talking to one woman who came to my uh, clinic for weight loss, and what she would do is go to these fast food restaurants and pick up food for their kids so they could eat it as they were going from their violin lesson to their soccer practice. Right, right. They never had dinner at home. I mean, that, that's well, such a basic. One, one day a week. It's such a basic concept, isn't it, Judith? Just where you're eating is probably, you know, prescribing what you're going to eat, and right, and defining what you're going to eat. So just simply having more meals where we sit down and, and the parents serve an actual meal. That's I know in uh, one of your articles you talk a lot about the serving sizes and just the serving size we eat at home. A lot of times might be smaller than the the meal that we're having out on the road. That's absolutely right. Um, but we're used to big portions, and uh, when their kids go out to you know a, a McDonald's, or I don't want to really name any particular fast food restaurant because they're all the same, and they think that a, a proper <laughs> dinner might be three hamburgers, you know, five strips of bacon and cheese, and a big uh, bag of French fries along with a large soda, and they get home and their mother is serving them this minuscule piece of chicken. They're thinking, "Wait a minute, <laughs> you're killing <laughs> me." Yeah, exactly. You know what we're so it has to be a, a multi-dimensional approach, and certainly schools can be helpful because they, they you know show kids if they have to take the time to do this. This is a proper serving. You should have vegetables and lunch. I mean, when I went to school, we had something called get this home economics. Oh, I remember. Okay, and, and and of course, some of the food was nauseating that our teachers made <laughs> us eat. But on the other hand, we had some idea, yeah, that you know you should eat vegetables, and this is you, know, you should wash them and cut them up and slice them and what have you. Or you really, um, you know, should be serving uh, high fiber foods. You know, what was a high fiber food? And we brought that information home. And if our parents didn't know about it, at least we sort of like kids because we always thought we were smarter than our parents. You know, make sure that True. we paid attention to what we were saying. And I. I 
so I do think that that schools have a, a very important role to play in giving and showing by example um, that that this is the kinds of foods to eat and those aren't the kinds to eat. But the you know I think the issue though is even greater than just parents, kids, and their schools. And part of it is the fact that parents work extremely hard. Most parents, you know, both parents are working. They work long days. Oftentimes they have long commutes. They don't have much time for themselves. They don't have much time to shop or prepare food. They certainly don't have much time to exercise because their day is so long just with work, commuting, taking care of their home, taking care of their kids. And so I think our whole society, by by and large, is overworked, have too little sleep, which causes us to overeat. Kids really probably don't get enough sleep either. We don't really have the time to prepare the foods that we should, even though you could get them in the supermarket. A lot of parents don't even have a chance to get to the supermarket as right. often as they can. So, I, you know, so it, when you say people it, are gaining weight, you're right in this country. They're gaining weight very, very rapidly, but it is not just a matter of parents, as this Puerto Rican government, you know, is saying, right. feeding their kids too much. It's a matter Matter of parents being overwhelmed by what they have to do, uh, no, very little time, and really not having the time, and in many sense, in many cases, not even the money yeah. to buy the kinds of foods that they should be. Well, eating. and even the education. Like every time I do a segment on healthier eating, it's it seems in my mind more complicated than not healthy eating. I mean, I can go. Yes. I don't need to think about it at any restaurant, but in order for me to create a healthier offering, it's there's actually thought that needs to be there. And so really, I, I think part of that is we, we just need we just need more information. And then I guess we need some motivation. Maybe that's really what the, the Puerto Rico uh, legislature was trying to do is create a motivator an an impetus to get somebody to change what 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 is the number one trigger to get somebody to eat healthier have you found that I, in your research well i think i, I think but if you if the pediatrician you know you take your kids to a pediatrician and the pediatrician says look your child is so fat your child may develop diabetes mm. your child's so fat that your child may be uh at risk for developing some orthopedic problem or even more important your child is fat your child's going to be bullied yeah Social discrimination. And that is social, and that is absolutely true. There are studies that have shown that fat kids are bullied in the on the playground, and that, and this is really shocking. That even teachers, they don't bully overtly, but they may make fun of a fat kid in the classroom. They may have their own perception. Oh, that kid right. is lazy. That kid. Uh, you know, is not going to work that hard. Uh, that kid is unattractive. He's so fat. Maybe he's not clean. You know, teachers also have negative attitudes toward fat kids. And I think any parent, no parent wants your kid, her, her his or her kid to suffer. Right. And if you say to a, a parent, you know, especially of a young kid who's getting fat, look, if you don't do something about it, your kid's going to grow up really unhappy and, and, you know, have all sorts of lack of self-esteem, really not maybe even achieve his potential because you're feeding your kid too much. It seems to me that is a, a very strong motivator. Oh, it really sh- You don't and, want your kids to be sad. Well, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I really like that you brought that up because there's always the physical, you know, ailments, heart disease, di- type 2 diabetes. But, boy, that emotional one, then the, then the child maybe goes more inwardly and then eventually, by the way, needs to then medicate maybe with exactly. food. Uh, their emotional issues, and I know you've written a book on that, the serotonin solution. Yeah. That sometimes we just carb up to to basically take get more serotonin in our system. Is that right? 
Well, I well the, 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 um, there, there are two things. What, one is um, that that, and this I think goes back to what you were saying a little earlier. It's so hard to find out to figure out what we're supposed to be eating. And one of the problems is that if you pick up the newspaper or a, a, a magazine, you know, the checkout counter, every single minute it seems that there's a new diet. Eat. Red meat, don't eat red meat. Right. Eat fat, don't eat fat. Eat carbs, don't eat fat. You know, any carbs, you know, kale, apparently, which we all thought was really the wonder drug. Now, is par- wonder food has now been linked to thyroid problems. Oh, no. You know, last year was eat kale. No, don't eat kale. Yeah, no kale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it should not be that complicated. Right. I mean, uh, animals in nature don't have to read diet books to figure out what That's they should true. be eating to keep themselves alive. But but you know, this celebrity is eating this, and that celebrity is not eating that. Now it's gluten, you know, right now. Next month, it'll be something else, presumably. Yeah. And I think we should just go back to basics, you know, that you should, should be, and, and the USDA keeps trying to put, uh, I mean, the uh, yeah, Department of Agriculture tr- keeps on putting out all these recommendations, and people just ignore them. Oh. Just ignore them, like, well, they're pretty dull. Yeah, they don't even yeah, know my family. Eat, yeah, eat high-fiber foods. What's interesting about that? More fun to tell people I'm not eating gluten. Or, gee, people say that I should be eating not very much red meat or not very much, pro- you know, just limited amounts of protein because protein contains fat. Oh, but that's not fun. I really mm. just go on a paleo diet and go out and, you know, go out with a club and hunt down my bison and eat it. <laughs> that, know, see, that, that's it, Judith. So that, that is the complication um, that we're going to deal with. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're talking with Dr. Judith Wortman. She's a doctor in cell biology, is also a health and weight loss uh, guru. She's the author of several books, including Eating Your Way Through Life. Uh, she's also a Psychology Today um, blogger as well. We'll take a break. And come back. More with Dr. Judith Wertman. You can go to her website, serotoninpowerdiet.com, and uh, continue this discussion about what we should be doing, how we could be influencing our children to healthier eating habits, up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how we can encourage healthier behaviors in our children, our loved ones, without, you know, creating a complex for them. Except remember, if they're not healthy, if they're overweight, if they're suffering uh, with obesity, they're going to probably have a complex anyway, just simply because of how others might treat them. Um, even those that... Uh, that are their teachers, their their leaders. They they we we see people differently when they've gained weight, when they're a little heavier, and we automatically make these interpretations. Not always healthy, but we interpret uh, a lot about somebody just by their weight. So we've asked a great expert to join us. Judith Wortman is here with us, and she is um, the author of many books in this field. Uh, is also the founder of Triad, a Harvard Hospital weight loss center. She um, also has written a book called Eating Your Way Through Life, The Serotonin Solution. You can go to serotoninpowerdiet.com to get more information about that. Managing your mind and your mood through food. And she's teaching us about uh, a positive way, a healthier way to interpret or to, to influence our children and our family. Judith, welcome back to the program. 
Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I, I wanted to just mention something uh, that seems so obvious, but uh, oftentimes it doesn't occur to us as parents. Who brings the food into the house? <laughs> right. You, until, right. Until your kids can drive and have money and gas in their car uh, or have access to you know, restaurants or fast food places near their school, and that isn't common in most places. The only way the food gets into the house is by the parents bringing it in. So here you have a gate between good food and bad food, and it's the parents who bring the food yeah. in, in, through that gate. Which means you and can influence parents, it. Just that. Exactly. Just bring in different stuff. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure you've been in the supermarket and seen people behind you in the checkout line, and somebody will have a, a basket full of healthy food, and you'll see somebody else with a basket full of sugary sodas and many, co- you know, perhaps cookies and cakes or chips, uh, not, not a vegetable in sight, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, what kind of household you know, is that? You know, what are the people eating in that house with packaged foods and, and nothing that looks really healthy, fruits, vegetables, high-fiber foods, dairy, low-fat dairy products? So there has to be some education, some perception by the, uh, on the part of the person actually shopping for that food. This is what you need to feed your family. Mm-hmm. This is what you need to feed yourself, not just for your kids. Because you, if you're not healthy, your kids aren't going to have a healthy mom or dad to right. take care of them either. And I, I wonder if you know, there should be maybe some point even in a supermarket or some way of interacting with, with the parents in giving them information that is simple to follow. Let's forget about the fad of the month. You know, simple to follow, have been eating fruits, vegetables, foods with some high fiber, um, making sure your kids are getting calcium through low-fat dairy products like yogurt and, and fat-free milk or low-fat milk and cottage cheese. You know, forget the high-fat cheeses and the ice cream so that at least you can be sure that while your kids are still eating at home before their teens and have their car, they are getting the foods they need to grow healthily. And, and you know, pediatricians probably won't tell you this. They're just too overworked. But wouldn't it be nice if there were a pediatric clinic with a nutritionist, even yeah. part-time, assigned, so that as your kids are going to real food, you know, from infancy, etc., at some point you sit down with a mom who may not know this, because maybe her mom didn't know this, and say, what are you feeding your kids? And maybe you shouldn't be, you know, rewarding him with cookies. Right. You know, yeah. You know, when, when he starts whining. Or, <laughs> Hit a home know, run, maybe... son. I'll take you to lunch. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that at a ball game where somebody's like, really? get a double and I'll get you a double. <gasps> and everyone no. kind of gasped in the, yeah. you know. But yeah. I, I guess yeah, part of it is we, we use it. We might be using food to motivate people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're. It works maybe with a dog if you give right. a treat right. in the sitter's den. But even that, you don't give the dog, no. you know, the whole package of treats. It's, it, <laughs> and and I think if we perhaps fed our kids sometimes with the care that we take with our pets, because we don't try to feed our our pets junk food. Yeah, you know. I mean, so so really, it's about it. It's food intake, right? It's the food intake side, and then it's the exercise side. Exercise. And that is, has to be so important. I mean, it, it, I, I, again, it, the kids, I think, are overburdened with homework. Uh, and when they are finished with their homework, they, you know, they, they have their computer games to play. Good weather doesn't help. I mean, I, you yeah. know, from New England, you know, certainly if people didn't gain weight in Boston this year, I don't know why not, because everyone was housebound for a whole month. Well, and I think but, of but inner I, city. I, if you live in an inner city, the right. streets might not be safe to go play on, or you may not have a Absolutely. park to get to very easily. So, I mean, some of this is situational, and then it becomes educational, and then it becomes in systemic and endemic, right? 
That, that's right. That's right. But but I don't. But it's certainly reversible. Yeah, it is. And and and, and but 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 again, my, my feeling is you can't walk in as a oh uh, you know a nutritionist on call and say you are doing everything mm. wrong and this is how you should change. You have to be able to work within people's own comfort zone. You know, if they're used to eating certain foods, can we make them slightly less fattening? If you're used to eating dessert, maybe okay. You want cookies for after dinner, fine. But you don't have to get high fat cookies. You can get cookies, you know, that are lower in calories sure. and have one, not six. You know, or have and make sure you have them along with fruit or you know so, something that is nutritious, not just eating a, a pastry for dessert. You know, can we? I know you want to serve X, a pork roast, let's say for dinner, but. How about serving smaller portions and making bigger portions of your side dishes, like vegetables? Mm. If you, you want to serve vegetables, let me show you how to make them so they taste good without putting a pound of butter on them. Um, you want to eat uh, a carbohydrates? Fine. You want to eat pasta? Good. You don't have to eat it soaked with, you know, smothered with cheese. You can have it with a fresh tomato sauce. And, and you want to eat rice. It does not be fried. It should be steamed. Yeah. I mean, you can take people's own eating habits and tweak them so that they are lower in calories, smaller in portion size, but still satisfying and not in a, putting people into another eating culture zone. I mean, certainly if you're Mexican, you're not going to be particularly happy eating clam chowder <laughs> with brown <laughs> bread as they might in Boston. And people in Boston are not going to be eating foods with hot peppers in them as they might in New Mexico. You know, it's just not your yeah. eating culture. So you have to work within the eating culture. You have to make it compatible with, you know, maybe a couple of generations of how you eat, but making it healthy, you know, smaller, you know, fewer fat calories, smaller portions, and trying to tweak, you know, the foods with perhaps uh, uh, ingredients that are, are healthier, like, you know, putting maybe carrots into, grating carrots into somebody, into muffins that you make so that your kids are getting some vegetables. Yeah, and they don't, they don't even, even see they're it. sneaking it in there. I really appreciate um, these ideas, Judith. I, I love, too, in your article, one of the basic things you said is the best solution is gentle rather than cataclysmic change. And and just all those little substitutions you gave us, I, I appreciate it, and I think it gave us a lot of um, a lot of hope, a lot of ideas. Again, everybody, go check out. She's got more information on her website um, as well. If you go to serotoninpowerdiet.com, dot uh, com, a lot of her books are there as well. Just basic stuff, or go to Psychology Today and read her articles. Judith Wortman, Doctor Judith Wortman, thanks again for joining us. Truly, folks, it's just a little change, and yet when you see the impact that it has long term, uh, it, it's it could change your child's psyche. It could change just the the way your grandchildren eat, your great grandchildren, uh, how healthy they can be as well. Don't oh be overwhelmed by it all. Just let's get something done. Just one choice today: a little healthier, get a little more exercise. We don't have to use a carrot and a stick approach. Let's just use the carrot approach. We don't have to beat people up just because uh, they are not eating healthy. Let's see if we can teach them. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to talk to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, BYU, in the uh, big NCAA tournament later tonight. We're going to get into that as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the hoedown music, uh, hee-haw music, as we call it, and uh, which only means one thing. We've got to toss it over to BYU Sports Nation, our good friends, 
Spencer and Jerem hanging out there. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Same to you. You're wearing your green. I one of us is. Yes, Jerem. Why are you I don't abstaining? Let the Irish tell me what how to live my life. Jerem <laughs> hates all holidays ever. I'm not Jeremy. Jehovah's Witness. I'm Mormon, dude. Play around. Play the game, my friend. Hey, I'm not I wearing all ho- any green either. What? <laughs> I don't wear green? What is this, elementary school? Pinch Jerem. him. Pinch him, Spencer. I know, right? Well, no, that like, doesn't no, give you a right I'll, to pinch someone. I'll punch someone. you in the face. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to create a holiday where I punch you in the face if you don't do something that some <laughs> distant culture says. What? Come on. Hey, guys, speaking of punching in the face. Yeah. Uh, do yep. you hear about Mitt Romney? Oh, yeah, the wearing the Ole Miss jersey or the shirt? No, 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 no. You haven't heard, I bet. Mitt Romney, is he's giving up politics. He's going into boxing. <laughs> okay, that too. Yeah, do you remember that? No, he's not. He is too. He's going to box heavyweight boxing champion Evander Holyfield in a marquee event in May. How many rounds do you think it's going to go? I, I, I'm going to go with a tenth of a round. A tenth of yeah. a round. 13 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. On May 15th, those two are going head-to-head. And this is Romney's quote. It will either be a very short fight or I will be knocked unconscious or both. Romney quipped in an interview today. It won't be much of a fight. We'll both suit up, get in the ring and spar around a little bit. Okay. well, there you go. This sounds like one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in my life. It sounds like Carl Malone getting in the ring. Who did he box? No, he did WWE. Oh, that's right. Physically can hang in the ring. Yeah. Well, you don't think Mitt could take on Evander? Are you serious? (laughs) A politician? He's an agile 68-year-old former Massachusetts governor. Give me Is a break. He's 68? Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. I would have thought 58. Yeah. But he's ripped. You know, he's... Politically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually, he's actually for, for being... He's in great shape. Whatever he is, yes. He's, he's in great shape. He is. But it's Evander Holyfield. But you know what? I think you just got to get one of Evander's ears, and it'll all be over. Yeah. Oh. If he can just if he can just munch on one of those ears, it's done. Nom 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 nom. <laughs> <laughs> the governor bit piece of my ear off. That would make great video, though. Oh man. Anyway, this is the real thing. This isn't from the Onion. No, that's the real deal. That's from that is it's a it's they're raising money. They're, it's a, yeah, it's a fundraiser. It's a charity event. There's nothing. Yeah. But you know what? If he wins, there's nothing fun about that for Mitt Romney. If he wins, he does get to take on. Um, Tyson. <laughs> no, he gets to take on Kanye's wife, Kardashian. <laughs> it's huge. Kim. Kim. Hey, uh, anything going on today? You know, no. I nope. mean, besides St. Patrick's We're thinking Day. about canceling the show. There's not a lot going on. Oh, yeah, there's this there's this game in the NCAA tournament at that interest. Oh, 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 is that Wait, still I, going on? I thought that started Thursday. No, mm. it starts today, Jerem. Oh. With the first four. And BYU's in it. Oh, man. See, I, we haven't talked for a while because I I've, I've been out. Just you know, my feelings are hurt. Kind I know of about that, but I think it impacted the. I think it impacted the the Gonzaga game. Well, mm. the Matt Townsend effect. Yeah, look, I know we know the power that it bears. Well, and we're we're back. So tonight, we're it's it's going to happen again. We'll, it's we a win, win, baby. Yeah, today it on the show. Good. As a matter of fact, Matt, national experts all over the board, and we're not talking just like really. You know, lower-tier guys like the guys, Jay Billis, Jerry Palm, Jay Williams, ESPN. They all have BYU as like this trendy Cinderella pick to make a crazy run in the NCAA tournament. Really? Yeah. And so we're going to talk about why maybe they think that and what our expectations are. 
And, you know, is, is it a good thing? Is it yeah. a good thing to I be in that spot? No, you want to be under the radar. I bet they heard about our shows. That's probably what it is. <laughs> I'm sure it has something to do with the Matt Townsend show. <laughs> I highly, 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 highly doubt it. <laughs> but I do, I do know that the boxing match was, had a lot to do with my show. Mitt Romney said he'd do it if we'd put it on the show. Well, and you're going to That's all it took, apparently. Are you sitting ringside and, like, doing oh, yeah. tweet, like, I'm actually his corner man. Event? Yeah, I'm running the corner. You're no good, Rock. So you're going to yell at him. <laughs> I'm going to stick my, ma- my hand in his mouth and grab his mouthpiece out. <laughs> oh. oh. Why is he doing this? This is money. He's changing the world, Jerem. Jerem's legitimately concerned for Mitt Romney's well-being. Jerem, he'll be fine. It's just holy filled. It's the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to answer that question. What would have been cool it's is like if a, it was It's a sideshow circus act now. It's not a... What? No, it's fundraising. They're, they're just doing He didn't shave his head, Jerem. He's just boxing Holyfield. Just boxing Holyfield. All right. I can, th- I can think of... Uh, you know, like if he, played my, if he pulled a Will Ferrell in spring training or something. <laughs> that was great. Was that not great? Yeah. Hey, by the he way... He might actually get hit in the face. He, you know, he'll be fine. They're going to pat him up. He'll put a big pillow, tape it up with yeah, duct tape. Um, is, uh, Spencer, is it true that if they get to the final four, you'll cut your hair? Um, I, if the BOA men's basketball team makes the final four, I will shave my head. Oh, that is so That would be great. unbelievable. A, a, an 11 seed has done it out of a playing game before. Well, let's Virginia do it. Commonwealth University, VCU, yes, has done this. Just a few this. years ago. That would be worth it just to see that moment. <laughs> it's not <laughs> happening. Every <laughs> year, by the way, a play-in... Uh, Every year, one of the playing game teams, one of the eight, has advanced, I believe, uh, and won at least two games. It's going to so, happen. So BYU fans hope that well, that's we can the win fate today. of the Cougars. Come on. That's all we got to do is win today. And then when, you know. We win, just, win, win tonight. You yes. just got to win the game that you're playing. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to sound cliche. No, but that's the thing. For Too me, that, for me that, is, that is the message today. That's it. Just win. Just win tonight. Yes. Okay, it'll it's happen. a good matchup. You send you send the karma. I'll send the MTE. It'll all be good. Done. Okay, and then I'll, we'll see you guys ringside in May <laughs> May fifteenth. That would be awesome to save be. our seats. <laughs> I'll save you a seat. Okay. Thanks, gentlemen. Have okay. a great show. You know that's it's uh, a big deal. Can you imagine being ready to play in the NCAA tournament? Like, what do you do the day of? You stretch out. You stretch. Yeah, hang out in the hotel room. See, that would drive me crazy. Watch TV. Oh, that's bad. You go run, eat, stretch. Perform your required media tasks. Yeah. See, psychologically, that's a big deal. But one of our good friends uh, is always on their, you know, in their head. He's always working their head, working it. He's the, he's the what do they call him, the psychology, the sports psychologist for BYU. Craig Manning, he's working it. Um, I learned a lot from Judith Wortman as well. I think one of the dilemmas when it comes down to losing weight is you're dealing with habits and you're dealing with education and you're dealing with psychology. But you, Terry. Yes. What was your middle name again? Because uh, every time Terry's I make good. one up, you make. That's you good. Me. Just go with Terry. Terry Owen yeah. South. You always, you've, you got healthy. You lost 30 pounds. I did. What was the key? We took away all of the food we were not supposed to eat. All the good stuff. Okay. All the good stuff. If you empty out your house and all you have, there was times where I wanted a snack. You go out to the kitchen. There are no snacks because the food we had, because we, yeah. we had it set up where we ate 
small meals. Mm-hmm. And so everything in our house was set up to build those small meals. Kind of like you, a pigeon. If you eat anything, you're taking away from a small meal. Oh, that's true. So you had six small meals. So if you have six small meals a day, you buy the food to set up for six small meals a day, and you eat anything, then you're, you're going to take away Thursday's meal in the afternoon because you just ate it. So wow. you can't snack. So it's rationing. So yeah, you. It, it was it's hard. almost like you were. Yeah, it's like I wouldn't you recommend were on a doing it this island. way. But could you not? Like in my head, if that was going on, I would just. My, I would think to myself, "Hey, just pull over and go to that restaurant right there on the way home." I I try not to carry cash yeah. for that very reason. Yeah, because my, I will spend yeah. it on food if I'm hungry, and with the credit card. I know that's trackable, and then we'll go back and look what you did. You know, I can see where I did that. So know about it. I don't. I didn't cheat at all. Well, that's an interesting way to do it. Uh, So basically, you uh, didn't purchase uh, enough food, and you carried no cash. So in many regards, you were living like a a different level of lifestyle. Yes, but I can. I found that I can do that. That worked for you. I could, you know, like rip the bandage off real fast and just. Do what I need to do to, to make this happen. Other people have to work their way into yeah. it. I've been trying uh, the idea where you eat so much of one thing that it makes you so sick. You have to eat till you're sick. And so the last month, I've tried it with donuts, with Twinkies, with candy, with chocolate. Interesting phenomenon, though. I'm, I'm not getting sick. I, and I'm consuming a lot. And I have yet to get to the sick point. And so you really enjoy the donuts. And part of what I'm thinking to myself is I got to push harder. Yeah, I don't think you're trying hard enough. I am. You know, I just need to try harder. You need to eat more. I mean, you'd think you'd get sick eating as many donuts as I'm eating, but I'm not even getting sick. In fact, I'm just my pants don't fit. <laughs> well, that just makes me more resolute. See, what I found is once I stopped eating all the food that I that you're not supposed to eat, the donuts, yeah. all that kind of stuff, when you go back to that, it made me sick. Oh, like, that's e- a weird even, way. even right now, I could eat one donut. And you get sick. Kind of don't feel well. There's too so, much sugar. Okay, let's talk about this for a sec. Because uh, some people, though, have a favorite snack. So are you kind of a – are you a salty or are you a sweet? I don't know. Probably salty. I go salty. I'm more of a chip guy. Yeah, you you seem a little salty to me. So we would find alternatives. You could just eat salt. Well, no, you, kale chips. We found some some chips that were healthier. You know, the problem is they're not going to be your you favorite could, chip because those taste really good for a reason. But they're you full could of fat. you could uh, break up a styrofoam cup and pour salt on it. Right. No, we we those went are good. we went strict like that for about a month. Did you? And then we kind of, you know, then you kind of, and that way you're just sort of purging everything from your house, from your system. A month is what uh, some research shows that that takes to make a habit. Yeah. And once we got into those habits, then we could bring in a couple things here and there and we're able to manage them better See, while we still tried to be healthy. Well, I'm proud you did it. I'm going to do it. I'm getting closer. I've actually figured out my foot a little bit more. I have an exercise ball for my foot, cleaning out the bad toxins. In my foot. Hey, we've had a great show. We've talked to Chris Boyce, if you remember, the very first hour. Basically, losing work impacts your psyche, makes you more depressed, makes you more, you know, less social, less involved. Great lessons there. We also got into the superbug and what we need to do about that. Basically, we need fewer antibiotics. And 
ask more to your medical advisors, you know, why we're pushing so many antibiotics when you go in there. And then last but not least, work on your health. Don't just make everyone else feel bad because they're gaining weight. Instead, work on you. Love the people you're with by creating healthier habits with them. That's the show, my friends. And we learned Mitt Romney's going to be boxing in May. Super great stuff. We appreciate you being with us. Again, we can't do the show without you. And our goal, again, is to give all of us a leg up in life so that we can create a great life. Your homework assignment, just go. Go make it a great day. Take care. We'll talk tomorrow.